Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats or go to Facebook, search for Political Beats there as well. We invite you to subscribe to our feed for those new episodes through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or right at nationalreview.com. Listen, enjoy, share, and leave reviews for Political Beats. And we invite you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Help the show stay ad-free, support our efforts here on the program. There's an entry level for support and voting, a mid-level for early access to new shows and a higher audio quality, and then the upper level, our bestest friends, with exclusive content at least once a month, remastered episodes with new song clips, and uh, and, and coming soon, uh, so many requests for Spotify playlists for our end-of-show choices. Those also are coming for our bestest friends, upper-level Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash Political Beats. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. Standing by... As always, my tag team partner, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? Well, I wouldn't say standing by. You know, in fact, Scott, I'm I'm actually feeling very relaxed right now. I, I'm reclining elegantly on my settee uh, in my man dress. You know, <laughs> you, you know, don't knock it until you've tried it, my friend. The feeling of taffeta against bare skin is just to die for. And I'm currently playing 78 pickup with this deck of tarot cards. <laughs> I've heard it's a very freeing experience, the, uh, the man is. dress. Yes. At Esoteric CD on Twitter for Jeff, at Esoteric CD. We welcome in our guest for today's program and the, the next couple of programs, uh, a senior correspondent at The Week, where he writes three columns a week about politics and culture. Find him on Twitter at Damon Linker. And appropriately enough, it is, in fact, Damon Linker. Damon, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. And uh, I apologize that my Twitter handle is really so unimaginative. It's the, it's, I, I, I did my best. It's the same strategy I used. So really, no yes. need for apologies. Uh, Damon Linker with us uh, here today as we talk about part one. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll break down the part in just a bit. But part one of David Bowie. Before we talk about our artist for today, we turn the floor back over to Damon to tell us a bit about... Uh, Yourself, how you got into this uh, position of the week and, and your journey sort of in the world of politics? Uh, sure, yeah. Um, well, I, I, uh, I went to, to grad school, uh, studied with students of uh, the renowned and controversial Leo Strauss. Um, and, uh, you know, I started out before then as kind of a centrist liberal. I kind of drifted right as a result of that Straussian education. Uh, and, you know, after failing to land a tenure track job, as all the best people do, uh, I ended up uh, going more into the political and journalistic uh, direction. I, I wrote speeches for Rudy Giuliani for a while. That was back before he he went a little a little out there. Um, it was just before 9-11 back then. And then uh, started writing for outlets, including uh, National Review. Uh, wrote some things for the back of the book, back when Adam Bella was the editor, uh, mm -hmm. some book reviews mainly. Uh, and ended up landing a job as an editor at First Things Magazine, uh, where I worked for three and a half years. 
until I ended up quitting uh, over irreconcilable ideological differences, including but not limited to the Iraq War. Uh, and since then, I've been sort of a, a kind of confused and confusing centrist liberal of a kind. Uh, I agree philosophically with conservatives on a lot of things, but on policy, often with kind of more moderate liberals. And uh, I've been kicking around journalism ever since. And uh, I've been doing these columns of the week now for, I guess it's almost seven years. I started at the beginning of 2014. So that's pretty crazy. It's hmm. almost like a thousand columns by now, something like that. So <laughs> anyway, that's me by making me realize that 2014 was actually seven years ago because yeah. it does not feel at all like that long ago. <laughs> I know, man. 2021. I can't. I can't even begin to wrap my head around that. When <laughs> like I was a kid in 2014. Yeah, when I was a kid, I looked forward to like the year 2000 and yeah. thought, "Oh, that's so long. It's going to be so I'm cool like, to oh, write yeah, 2000." Yeah. Anyway, so that's my story. Uh, we we know a thing or two about Leo Strauss here at Hillsdale. I heard alarm bells going off as you were uh, as you were talking. Uh, uh, Damon is with us today to talk about David Bowie, an artist that many of you might be slightly familiar with. Uh, as we introduce our artist, we turn it back over to Damon to tell us what he loves about David Bowie, how you got into him, and why people should care about this music. All right, sure. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is kind of a fun story. It just shows how far back in time we're really talking about here. I mean, I know you guys often are focusing on kind of classic rock stuff. Um, well, this certainly is uh, some classic rock. Um, I got into Bowie first when I was 13 years old, which happened to be the uh, the year of 1983. And uh, anyone who knows anything about Bowie knows that was a big year. That was the year Let's Dance came out. Mm. Now, as we'll get to in, the, I think, the second of our three uh, shows, uh, there was this uh, like unheard of gap in uh, Bowie's unbelievable prolific output of records between Scary Monsters in 1980 and then then three years goes by before Let's Dance comes out. Let's Dance comes out, and it is easily the biggest hit of his career. He was ubiquitous in 1983. You couldn't turn on MTV or the radio without uh, hearing a Bowie song come out. Usually Let's Dance, the title track, or China Girl after that, then Modern Love. All of this is out. He's on the cover of, like, Time Magazine. I think it was Time, not Newsweek. Um, and he's just everywhere. The Serious Moonlight Tour is going on. And I'm a 13-year-old kid. I'm sort of precocious in music. I love listening to music. All kinds of stuff from the Beatles to Rush to uh, to within a couple of years of that, R.E.M. and the Smiths and all kinds of stuff. And I don't really like Let's Dance, the song. It's okay. It has a kind of tuneful chorus, but it doesn't grab me. But there's something about the guy that is kind of exciting and weird and interesting. And one night I'm about to go to bed. And as I often did, I had the radio on with headphones and I'm laying down there with the lights off and they're about, they're queuing up a show from one of the New York city stations. This is in Southern Connecticut, Fairfield, Connecticut. And so we get the New York stations, thank goodness. And they're queuing up a kind of retrospective of David Bowie's career. And I think, all right, I know he's been around for a while. Let's see what some of his old stuff's like. And the first song they play is Five Years, the lead-off track from Ziggy Stardust. 
And I'm totally blown away as this 13-year-old kid. Like, song comes in with a kind of slow marching drum beat and then a huge auto harp strum on a big, I learned later, G chord. And, and, and within four minutes, Bowie sings this story in a totally different voice than I'm used to from Let's Dance because <laughs> his voice is much higher. He sings this story about how there's only five years left till the earth is destroyed and he's given this story this tableau of all these people out on like out on the street and how they're reacting to this news and the guy on the on the on the news on tv is crying and the song builds and builds to this almost cacophony of panic about this apocalypse and by the time that song was over i was totally floored Many mothers sighing. News had just come over. We had five years left crying. News guy wept and told us was really dying. Cried so much his face was wet. Then I knew. Was not lying. I heard telephones, opera house, favorite melodies, song boys, toys, electric irons, and TVs. A brain hurt like a warehouse, it had no room to spare. I had to cram so many things to store, everything in there, and all the fat, skinny people. Like, what is this? I feel like I just plunked myself down into, like, the craziest, coolest rock musical I'd ever heard of. And it sounded absolutely nothing like what I had heard of him. And then the rest of the show was a great, weird mix. I mean, from the semi-obvious, like Space Oddity and Major Tom, which I had heard but didn't know it was him. I thought it was John Lennon, actually. Hmm. Um, there's some very Lennon-esque chords in that song. And uh, and then like oh you pretty things driving Saturday all these from our perspective today sort of like quirky album tracks that are some of my favorite Bowie tunes. So by the time that show was over, I was hooked. I spent the rest of that summer of '83 just totally immersed in Bowie. Going to the library. Remember when you'd go to libraries and take out albums? Yes. I would go and ride my we, bike. We've talked many times on this show about how we've gotten like <laughs> CDs and albums from the libraries. Usually, our mom or oh, dad yeah. would let us do it. Yeah. And of course, this was way before CDs. So, like, I would ride to the there. I had a basket on the back of my bike, and I'd go and I'd take out the record albums. You bring them home, of course, they're scratchy messes because they've been taken out for years and played <laughs> by all these different people uh but you know they had hunky dory there and diamond dogs and some of his best older albums and i was just totally like in graduate school of bowie at age 13 after that experience so that's my my bowie story i mean why is it important and awesome i mean you're going to hear all about it in these episodes 
But it's like each Bowie album, especially through the 70s, is like its own universe of music. Styles change from album to album. Bowie is an unbelievable songwriter. He doesn't usually get credit for that. He's more seen as, you know, the image, the the, the hair, the, the personas that change. And that's all great, too. And we'll talk about all of that. But my line, maybe of the three of us, where I'm going to keep coming back to is this guy can write amazing, weird, off kilter, great pop songs and um and i've always loved him for that and i do i think he should be recognized as up there and like say that like dozen best pop songwriters in music history As to how I got into David Bowie, I don't even think it's a particularly interesting story. It was obviously something that happened uh, somewhere around the second half of my high school years. You know, you, you know it's important. You've everyone's heard Space Oddity. You go start out with Ziggy Stardust. This is actually, unfortunately, during the era where all of his albums were were going out of print, and so it was really difficult to find them hmm. uh, because uh, the Ryko Disc stuff was was gone off the market, and he hadn't like you know reissued the stuff on virgin yet uh but so i actually became like quite the scrounger and i spent time hunting it down and then in my opening years of college i was like this is when ebay had first started i went on ebay and i bought all the rest of the albums because you know and i had to have those bonus tracks right i was obsessed with bowie just i think the way a lot of like the hardcore fans sort of become for a very long period of time in fact i i actually you know i joke about this but it's true there there are two artists that i went through phases where i actively wanted to be them one was elvis costello we discussed that at our elvis costello episode uh, a year ago i think and the other one was david bowie
But I don't really think any of that to me is as interesting as what I feel is the necessity to sort of locate this person and situate him correctly. And, I, and one of the things I've, I've, I've confessed this to Scott just before we went on the air is that I'm frankly a little terrified of doing <laughs> this episode, this series of episodes, because Bowie was such a complex artist, such a complex man. He was actually wildly misunderstood, oftentimes quite intentionally. He sought to be misunderstood and misapprehended in his time because he was, I think, he was a fan of both revealing and diverting people. But a lot of his songwriting, you don't think of him in the same language, in the same way that you think of someone like Neil Young as like a confessional singer-songwriter. Neil Young's always writing about like what's going on in Neil Young's life. You don't think of David Bowie that way. You think of the artifice, the theatricality, the stage productions. You think of all the various guises and personas that he has adopted. But the truth is, is that so much of David Bowie's music is autobiographical as well. It's just disguised. And here hidden and hidden in such a way that it almost sometimes becomes a kind of a hazardous uh, adventure to try to you know, put too crisp and too clear a meaning on some of the lyrics that he's written for a lot of his songs and albums. Uh, but the reason I say all that is because I kind of want to dispense just right up front, which what I've always found to be the most irksome sort of cliche that is always used to describe Bowie, which is that he's the chameleon. He's the faker. You know, he's the guy who just will, you know, discard, you know, one persona like a skin suit and then psh, you know, next next year I'm somebody else. I'm, you know, you know I'm, and it's all just artifice. That's not what David Bowie was about. David Bowie, for me at least, was about not just the, the relentless creativity that saw him keep experimenting and trying to, you know, take in new styles. And he was a musical magpie, and I think that's how he developed into that sort of a thing. He was interested in everything. He was interested in not just rock and roll. He was, you know, he interested in, you know, theatrical music. He was interested in Anthony Newley. He was interested in West End Broadway or West End Theater in London and Broadway and he was interested in mime. There's a part of this early career where he just dropped out of doing music and joined a mime troupe. That's not a joke. <laughs> yeah. All right. And he actually ended up using it like, you know, in his stage. He you know, opened for T-Rex, right? As a, as a mimist. As, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Mark Bolin, who had known Bowie and sort of liked the crap on him, said like, yeah, you can open for me, but you can't sing. You got to do the mime <laughs> stuff. You know, they, they had a, a, a pretty interesting, you know, hot and cold little friend, frenemy relationship all, all throughout that time. But the thing is that what you lose when you refer to David Bowie as just this sort of chameleon always changing is that you lose that true sense of, of artistic authenticity that's within him. All right. I mean, American critics, it's hard to believe this now because, you know, even before he died, Bowie had that elder statesman status where he was just universally beloved. You know, at, 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 you know by 2015, you know, uh, everybody loved Bowie. Oh, he's one of the greats. Uh, back in the 70s when this music was coming out, he was loathed particularly in american with like a passion that you usually use for like you know cockroaches and you know uh, evangelical christians like they really didn't like him all right you know the the theatrical affectations this emphasis on fashion and visual arts and that that steady maintenance of a layer of ironic detachment um that was all treated as sort of this, like you know, direct insult to you know what, what's the, the the true working class heart of rock music, um, and and so people started referring to him even as he's reviving the careers of all these other people like Lou Reed, Mott the Hoople, and Iggy Pop. He was you know 
more often than not derided, especially by the American critics, is like some sort of, you know, vampire, like this ghoulish Nosferatu who just feeds off the vitality and the essence of those more authentic and real than him. But that's just so lazy and reductivist to me. Bowie liked to change styles and change the way he presented himself and his music because he was never satisfied with just one way of getting his point across. And I think because he always liked to hold a little bit of himself back, like just like just the last song of his entire career is called I Can't Give Everything Away. All right. That's kind of the way he lived his life. So he would give a lot of himself away. And it's all throughout this music. Actually, I think the only time where he's not really doing this is sort of in, during the Ziggy Stardust era and the Aladdin Sane era, where he is very self-consciously playing a role and enjoying the, the, the theatricality of playing a role. But on all these other albums, from this early period and also you know, definitely in the later 70s, you see a man actually who's revealing a lot of himself to the world and just asking you to try to figure it out. And I'm going to like, I'm going to enjoy trying to explain to people uh, what this is and trying to figure it out with you all. Uh, and I may get it wrong because, you know, everybody's got a hundred different interpretations of some of these songs. Who the heck knows what the Bewley brothers is actually about. <laughs> There's a thousand different competing theories. Uh, but what I love is not just the richness of Bowie's music. He's not a fantastic songwriter. He's not just a fantastic lyricist. He is a fantastic artist. He is a man in full. He is a complete artist, and I think the closest you have in the artistic sense to a Renaissance man. He, he was an, he was an accomplished painter. He was a fantastic stage actor. He was great, you know, physical talent, you know, with mime and other things like that. He could read. He could write. Um, he was complete in a way that very few musicians rock musicians have ever been I, I i think you know maybe someone like dylan approaches him but in a very different way now dylan obviously is the superior lyricist i think everyone would agree on that but dylan wasn't you know the stage you know performer that bowie was bowie was unique and he's the kind of guy who i just you know i I, I sadly believe I don't think we'll ever see his like again, which is one of the reasons why I'm thrilled to discuss him on this show, but I'm also terrified because I, I really do want to do him justice. Watching him dash away Swinging an old bouquet Twirls and sake and strange divine I will uh, just very briefly say a few words uh, so we can get into things. Um, and, and, and both Damon and, and, and Jeff uh, are, are, are bigger, more long-term Bowie fans than I. And I, I will go back to something that Jeff said at the beginning of his comments, which had a detrimental effect on my access, which is that, that, that chameleon uh, faker label. Yeah, I heard that. And uh, sometimes you're blocked from artists for random things or unworthy things. And for whatever reason, I had always connected 
those two things in my mind. You know, David Bowie kind of being a faker and changing with the times and going at the flow. And so I, I didn't get to him until very late. And in terms of a full-on start-to-finish look at his uh, work, this is going to be it for me. Uh, you know, this 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 time through his work is really the first time I've I've gone start to finish, and um, what I would say is, yeah, I mean, there, there's genre shifting uh, without a doubt. There's there you know there's there's some trends that are happening throughout the music, but uh, he he is a guy who wears his inspirations on his sleeve. You can hear echoes of artists he liked, uh, uh, you know, around the same time in a lot of that music. But more often than not, way more often than not, you know, he's on the leading edge of this stuff and certainly more so than following in the wake uh, of a trend. And uh, even with this this early sort of, uh, at least in parts, this, the glamminess that, uh, of, this, of this first era, uh, I had not truly been exposed to a whole lot of that before digging into these albums and this yeah. is really good stuff. I mean, I don't, I didn't think, you know, growing up when I was going through you know, the classic rock phase and experiencing the, the Stones and getting to all those artists, I didn't think of David Bowie as a rocker, right? Because, uh, you know, he had the Plastic Soul era, like Young Americans, and then by the time that Jeff and I are the same age, by that time, it was really, you know, the Let's Dance stuff that was being, that was being played all the time in Modern Love and China Girl, and that, that was not appealing to me. But going back here and listening to the music that was created during this era, I guess we should say we're going essentially from the start up through uh, Diamond Dogs and, and David Live here in the first part of this three-part series. Man, there is a lot of rock and roll here, right? There is yeah. a lot of you know, big riffs. There's a lot of Mick Ronson, who is a fantastic guitarist. My goodness, if I discovered one thing. It's it's uh, it's Mick Ronson is just a heck of a guitar player and uh, and many different levels, um, and, and and so digging into this and getting into the, the, this this first era of Bowie has been a really joyful experience. I really enjoyed a whole lot of this music, uh, maybe not quite so much the very first album, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, that's all right. It's a little different. And I think but of the you, three of us. You don't like sell me a coat? You don't yeah. like Uncle Arthur? <laughs> I know the three of us. I don't think I know of the three of us that Jeff is the one who has the most thoughts. It has 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 lived with this very early Bowie music the longest. So perhaps yeah. you can start us off here, Jeff. Okay, well, I mean, the story doesn't necessarily even start there. It starts before that. He'd been in a whole bunch of, like, failed, you know, never-was bands like the Conrads and the Buzz, and he'd recorded a bunch of solo singles for Pie Records, uh, you know, which is the, uh, the label that the Kinks were on also. Um, and, of course, that all, that all flopped. They're all there. You know, you can go find them now, almost certainly on YouTube, but they're not something that really you want to, you need to spend time on. And I really don't think that there's any particular skeleton key that can fully explain everything about David Bowie. He's more complex than that, and, and trying to reduce him, uh, you know, him and his artistic inspirations uh, to just one simple sort of slow, you know, slug line is going to you're going to fail. Uh, it's not going to be accurate. But I think the closest I can get is that if you want to understand what he was always fascinated by, it was <clears throat> the work that was on the outside. It was anything that seemed dangerous or new or strange or different or secret or something like there was a hidden world and a hidden culture or something that was 
unique, hermetic, that could be brought out and made his own. And of course, he combined that with also a desire for commercial success as well, which is how you get something like Ziggy Stardust. But you see it in his earliest career. Like he was one of the first people on the planet to be covering Velvet Underground songs. He got an acetate version of the Velvet Underground and Nico back in 1966 when his manager at the time, a guy named Ken Pitt, you know, you know brought it back from New York. And he started playing I want, I'm Waiting for the Man in his band at the time. This is 1967. The album hasn't even been released. David Bowie <laughs> is playing the Velvet Underground. So this goes to Damon's point about this guy was really ahead of the times. <laughs> several interviews that what appealed to him about you know the whole Lou Reed lyric aesthetic is that this is just music that felt like it was completely different and of a completely different world that had none of the sort of restraints or you know you know none of the language that he had been accustomed to it felt so alien and yet something that he could sort of sort of close his eyes and get himself into mentally but the same goes for example for uh what he ends up doing on this first album, which is as far from the Velvet Underground as can conceivably <laughs> be imagined. This is the regrettable David Bowie album. That's what it's called. He, his first two albums were both originally called David Bowie, incidentally, leading to all sorts of confusion. We're going to call his second album Space Oddity to spare you guys. But the first album has always been known as David Bowie. He did it for Duram Records, which is, you know, I think the only other thing I ever know them for is the Moody Blues uh, Days of Future Past album. Um, it's, it's not good, is all I can say. It is not rock, is the other thing I can say. I don't think there's an electric guitar on this album. It's like goofy, fruity string arrangements, um, maybe a few like you know wispy strums of an acoustic guitar, and David Bowie singing in a very Anthony Newley-ish voice about everything from like little bombardiers who are mistaken for pedophiles to uh, please Mr. Gravedigger to weird Orwellian fantasies that would come back in his later work on stuff like We Are Hungry Men. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting lyrical vision behind this guy's writing, and it is very writerly. It's like, I'm going to write about weird scenes inside the gold mine to steal a line from Jim Morrison in the doors. Um, but of course, it's all such a this just... It, you know, in 1967, maybe it was fashionable, but oh my God, in these days, it sounds just so insufferably twee. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got to hear uh, 
you're like, you know, David Bowie warbling, what made him a soldier, little bombardier? This is like the sad old man who's the war veteran who wants to hang out with the little children. And then the people in this town think, like, why is he hanging out with the kids? He's some sort, sort of kid toucher. <laughs> and they run him out of town. And that's the song. And it's such a, this oompa, oompa, like being for the benefit of Mr. Kiteley. It's ridiculous. I can't recommend this album to anyone. There is nothing about this album that is any good. There are some funny moments. Like there's a song called Love You Till Tuesday, which was actually kind of like, you know, in this earliest part of his career, was like probably one of his major songs. He even did a film called Love You Till Tuesday where that he starred in. Um, you know, it was like a sort of even even in this early era david bowie was trying to sort of memorialize himself so uh like but it's got a funny line in it where it's like if you give him if you give me your love on sunday i'll love you till tuesday uh he, he's really not denying at all the fact that this is just a temporary fling and you know i, I just want to have some fun uh nothing permanent here uh a very anti-romantic sentiment but yeah there is nothing on this album that is worth listening to at all uh, the most the ironic enough thing is that the, the most well-known song from this era, if you're British, actually, is a song called The Laughing Gnome, which was a non-album single. It is the most ridiculous novelty song you've ever heard. It's about, indeed, a laughing gnome. And I think it either went to number one in the UK or close, <laughs> like after Bowie made it big, basically as a joke, because like people started trying to like push it up the charts because it was like making fun of him in his Ziggy Stardust years. Like, well, remember what this guy was doing like four years ago? He was doing the laughing no. I was walking down the high street. I wanted to have been though and point yeah. out that that this is the first appearance in the Bowie catalog of the vocoder. Yeah. This 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 totally like out of date technology where you speed up a voice and it sounds like a chipmunk. Yeah, you pitch and, it. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And it's like early pitch correction, but very, very analog. And uh, and this actually like Bowie comes back to this over and over again on songs like 
the Bule brothers. And then even on uh, uh, Scary Monsters, there's a track that uses it in 1980. So this is like something that Bowie just he kind of likes this device. And uh, and it's it first appears on The Laughing Gnome. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, uh, it's not the highlight of David Bowie's career, but, like, I think he even, like, did a cover of it once upon a time in, like, 2000, just as a joke, that w- when the Sound and Vision tour happened and, you know, Bowie actually submitted, like, it was the, the idea behind it, this is, like, his greatest hits tour in 1990, um, you know, so, like, you, the fans can vote for the songs, well, a bunch of, like, British radio stations... DJs decided it would be funny to like you know make everybody vote for the laughing gnome so David Bowie would be forced to play it next to like Diamond Dogs and like Ashes to Ashes on his greatest hits tour and it got to like number three in their rankings but then I get that Bowie actually just said like no come on you, you can't you can't mess with me like that I'm not gonna do it but listen that's that's not really the important this is obviously the sort of halting steps in Bowie's career. I think what matters more is who he met really right after this album's sessions concluded. And that's a guy named Tony Visconti. You're going to be hearing that name a heck of a lot uh, throughout the rest of these shows, all three episodes, in fact, uh, because I think, you know, he is, in fact, the most important long-standing collaborator that David Bowie ever has. He goes in and out of this story. He's not on all of Bowie's albums, but he's on a lot of them and a lot of the best of them. Hmm. And uh, they met and uh, they just hit it off. And and Visconti said like, okay, well, I want to produce some of your songs. And the next batch of songs that Bowie came up with are the first ones that demonstrate his real potential as a songwriter and as a performer. And the first of those is one that that I don't know how familiar you guys are with, but I really love. I think the best version of it you can find is on the Bowie at the Beeb, the BBC sessions. It's from 1968. It's called In the Heat of the Morning. And it's it's all like Sturm und Drang. There's like some goofy, it's just early Bowie lyrics like, you know, I'm so in love, like the ragged soldier chasing butterflies, which is just such a silly lyric, you know. It's, it's a lyric that, that I'm sure he was embarrassed by later on but when he sings like no one loves like i love you wouldn't you like to love me too (laughs) you know what there's drama in that song that's the first time a bowie song had actual drama a song kind of bangs as silly as it as it must sound to you folks Sunset in your eye will tantalize every man who looks your way. I watch them sink before your gaze, senorita sway. Dance with me before their frozen eyes. I'm so much in love, like the ragged soldier catching butterflies. No man loves like I love you. Wouldn't you like to love me too? In the heat of the morning In the shadow I'll clip your wings And I'll tell you I love you In the heat of the morning 
guys yeah. like any of this other or pre-space oddity stuff? Because I actually think there's there are a couple songs here that are worth worth singling out. When when I was young and listening to Bowie, I listened to that stuff once and told myself from now on Never in been. my mind, Bowie begins with the next <laughs> album. <laughs> and and, and it, that's been remarkably effective. Well, you know what? There's a song like, okay, yeah, there's a song here called Silly Boy Blue. It's on the David Bowie album, but he did a much better version of it for the BBC uh, later on. That I think is actually majestic. It's got a great string arrangement. The problem with it is that it's written about his like brief flirtation with Tibetan Buddhism. <laughs> so there's like these like yak butter statues and like there's all these weird images that 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 sounds sort of like warmed over within you without you by hey you know George Harrison from Sgt. Pepper's but then I just sit back and I shut my my eyes and I listen to the music and I'm like that's actually a really beautiful song Very obvious. I think we all agree that David Bowie hadn't found himself yet. I think where he finds himself is on a little novelty tune that he wrote to commemorate the upcoming moonshot by the United States, by the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, <laughs> uh, who among us wants to tackle uh, the first building block in the true legend of David Bowie, Space Oddity. Well, I, I would love to jump in with with one observation on yeah. it. I mean, I do love this song, uh, but the interesting thing about Visconti is you know the story about how Bowie wanted Visconti to produce this song, and they already had this relationship starting up, and Visconti passed because yeah. he thought it was a novelty tune. And he was like, ah, this is not something serious. He probably thought it was like something else from the 67 album. Uh, just to kind of, you know, he, he put like some fake strings on there and it sounds very, very twee, very fey and wouldn't be taken seriously. And so he, he said, eh, you got other songs, we'll do the album. You can, you can go somewhere else. And he ends up going to Gus Dudgeon, right, who right. you know goes on to, of course, be Elton John's big producer for through the peak of Elton John's career, and and he produces this great first single. And Visconti says that's the biggest mistake he made in that period. Round control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. Take your protein pills and put your helmet on. Ground control to Major Tom. Commencing countdown engines on. Three, two, check. 
check ignition and may God's love be with you. end up with is that first what i think of as first real bowie album that is now sort of retitled space oddity space oddity becomes this iconic song of his career it's the lead off track and that album is produced by tony visconti except for that except song. for that one song <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I mean i i tr- yes yeah, scott oh, go oh, no, i'm sorry you Go ahead, David. No, I mean, I mean, all I would say is, I just this song really captured my imagination when I uh, when I first realized it was Bowie and paid attention to it. I there's something so um, kind of a little uh, a, I don't know a little ridiculous about this major Tom idea, but when you hear it sung, it's so like over the top dramatic. Uh, that like the whole song is about you know set up like he's in the capsule and there's a march beat going on and it's the control tower talking to him and then the literal ten nine eight countdown and then the liftoff it's so incredibly literal that you would think it would be just hilarious like you wouldn't take it seriously and yet the way the song changes once you're in space with with this just incredibly beguiling melody uh with uh, i said earlier it's sort of like a lennon-esque you know uh one to the major three to the four chord it's a beautiful use of that and um and and the the melody is so good and then the this the story of the song is so dramatic that like he ends up stranded major tom stranded in space and abandoned to like live the rest of his days alone that uh it it really just it's like nothing else really i mean it's a really unique unique song never been my favorite and um going back to my original comments i think that's one of the other reasons that i was uh at arm's length with bowie for a long time is because uh, i always heard space Saturday for the uh, for the quality of the narrative as damon sort of points out i still heard it as somewhat of a novelty sort of song which i mean in a way it was right it was it was, it was written uh, with 
to, to coincide with what was happening. But um, so it's ne- I've never been uh, the biggest fan of Space Oddity. Hearing it through the prism of the beginning of his career and moving from there, it certainly is one of the places on Space Oddity that I think he finds his footing, though, because I, I, I think the rest of this album is still a lot of um, indecision. Um, there, there's still a lot of throwing a lot of stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks, right? There's there's some mod, there's a little folk, there's still a lot of the theatrics that you heard on, on the first uh, self-titled album, and it, it's all sort of found in different places. Um, uh, Space Oddity is not my, my favorite track uh, on the album. There are a few that stood out to me as being quite good. I like... Um, I like Janine quite a bit. Um, it's a great song, yeah. and I, I, you know, the way he just pronounces Janine too, and it's just like a slinky way, just off a bit. Uh, but it's got a basic, catchy chorus. Bowie, for uh, all his strengths as a songwriter, an excellent chorus writer through his career. He knows how to find a hook and work it and dig it into your brain. Janine has a really good chorus. And, it's also uh, got that lyric, that yes. lyric in the chorus, which is very, very, um, I suppose, portentous as, as to who David Bowie would be throughout his career. Where he says, you know, and if you take an axe to me, you'll kill another man, yep. not me at all. Yep. Because <laughs> I'm not really here. Yeah, it, it, it's a great line. The, the multiple personality sort of thing is, is right there in, in black and white in Janine. To your face, Janine. I like uh, I like unwashed and slightly dazed, uh, which I think is the second uh, track uh, on the album. Uh, it has it's very lush acoustic guitar to start. It, it's it sounds very Dylan esque in sort of the, the freewheeling vocals, the the odd uh, left field stuff, the eyes in the back of my uh, eyes in my backside. It's the electric tomatoes on credit card rye bread, all all that all those weird stuff. Uh, Dylan esque harmonica too. So you sort of see him, I think, a little bit there. And as I mentioned, sort of trying on these different motifs on songs through the album. Um, Rick Wakeman plays keys here. Uh, Paul Buckmaster, another Elton John tie, uh, does some of the strings on Space Oddity. So there are some really interesting people uh, involved in this album, but it still is not a home run for me. I know Jeff likes Space Oddity, uh, the, the album, I imagine the song quite a bit too. I actually think this is 
very close to David Bowie's most underrated album. Like, actually, you know, again, I have thought far too long about this. If I say, what are the three most underrated albums of David Bowie's career? Well, one of them would be Young Americans, which, of course, did have two huge commercial smashes on it. Um, one of them would be The Buddha of Suburbia, which we'll talk about much later on our third installment. And then the third one would be this one. All right. And I think, you know, the first thing to say is that it's, if it's at all possible for a song as famous as Space Oddity to be underrated, I think it sort of is. <clears throat> I think it's underrated in the way that songs that have become so familiar, uh, that have become so sort of ubiquitous, it, it have a tendency to end up getting lost. It, it's hard to hear them with fresh ears. It's hard to hear them new for the first time. Uh, there is a reason that this is the best song on this album. And this album, I think, is a very good album all around. But Space Oddity is still the best song on the album. And why is it? It's because the construction of those chords, the chord sequences, that's nobody wrote that kind of change, those kinds of changes, except David Bowie. You'll, you'll be going back to a lot of that. You'll see a lot of that similar style on The Man Who Sold the World, even on Hunky Dory, even on Ziggy Stardust. But the smoothness with which that chorus unfolds, you know, can you hear me, Major Tom? Can you hear as I'm sitting in my tin can? That is a just a beautiful soaring moment. Of course, Gus Dudgeon has the great string arrangement that, that rises up underneath him. Uh, that is a moment of transcendence. And it, it, it does actually, I think, stand out from the rest of the record and that nothing is quite that brilliant. But yeah, there's a reason that, you know, that song has followed David Bowie around throughout his entire career. And there's a famous anecdote that when, uh, uh, David Bowie wanted to take Adrian Ballou away from Frank Zappa. Uh, Adrian Ballou was playing in Frank Zappa's touring band, and Bowie wanted to steal him so he could like have him play on Lodger and like do the stage tour in 1978. And they all met in some restaurant, I think, in Germany. And uh, Frank Zappa was really pissed about having Adrian Ballou stolen away from him so that he would never do anything except refer to uh, Bowie across the table as Captain Tom. Um <laughs> Wouldn't even call him Major Tom. He called him Captain Tom, which I think is hilarious. He got it wrong intentionally on purpose. Um, but yeah, that's a reason it's synonymous with his name because it, it deserves to be. As for the rest of this album, I actually don't – there's not a song on this record that I don't like. There's lots of stuff here that people will be a little thrown off by, especially if their image of Bowie is either sort of like you know the, the Berlin-era Bowie, Scary Monsters, or Let's Dance, or Ziggy, or whatever, because what they're hearing here is a young man who's basically doing a lot of folk music, right? Yeah. There are songs here like Letter to Hermione and An Occasional Dream and God Knows I'm Good. I love all three of those songs, but they're basically David Bowie with an acoustic guitar playing and singing and that's all there is and then there's there's these things like this this there's again also this is an era where he had formed like a hippie commune and then the hippie commune had fallen apart and so he was really anti-hippie and i'm always in favor of a person who's anti-hippie <laughs> and that's how you get signet committee which is just absolutely wait, wait. an enraged piece of vile uh, just talking about all the failures of you know this you know, this fake you know we can all like live together and work for one another hippy dippy crap he just dismisses it all and then, and then by the end of it he's talking about like weird things about how like the love machine lumbers through desolation rose uh, and like you know every people everyone's committing murder and we're all, like oh, all these hippie dreams have led to like death and destruction it's a really weird dark trip but it just shows you that even early in his career he wanted to take really weird dark trips I bless you my 
sadly as I tie my shoes I love you badly Just in time for times I guess Because of you I need to rest Because it's you that sets the test Much has gone and little is new And as the sparrow sings Dawn for us Someone else to hear The thinker sits Some life, I gave them all. They drained my very soul. Yeah, that, can I just jump in on Signet Committee? Because yeah. I, I love that song. Like, other than Space Oddity, that's the song on this album that has always grabbed me. It is, it's nine minutes long. It's, it sort of has like overtones of like a sci fi thing. Like you're in some kind of dystopian world, but as you noted, Jeff, it, it ends up looking a lot like his own world of the kind of Woodstock era. Um, but musically, it's really interesting. Like to talk about those chord changes, like the, the, the kind of part of the, the, the part of the song that's sort of like a chorus, even though it's far too weird and long song to, properly call it a course but that's sort of there's a part of the song that repeats twice sort of like a dylan song that the i bless that, you madly sadly as i well that's the weird part like the the part that i think of as the chorus is the stuff like you were singing earlier with like uh i i gave them all they drained my very soul dry. yeah right like right. and that has a fairly straightforward chord chart to it it's kind of descending chord sequence but that other part that you were singing actually remarkably well jeff good voice um is <laughs> is very strange like harmonically it's all over the place it's just it's kind of modulating through keys with almost every second chord and it's just really interesting and yet it isn't like random nonsense it really works in a way that really tests your ear and that's i think a, a real kind of glimpse of some songs that are going to be coming up over the next few albums where he does that. And even later ones, like when we get to heroes, like sons of the silent age is a song that's sort of like that, where yeah. like you look at it and you listen to it and you're like, this should not work. And yet it's somehow he pulls it off. Wow. Uh, and I, you don't know how it's part of the genius of the man. Well, I think one of the most uh, important aspects of, of the whole space oddity album is that right near the end of it, uh, when they were recording a song called Memory of a Free Festival, which is good, actually, on the album. It's the album concluder, and it definitely has like a total steal from Hey Jude, which at that point had just mm -hmm. been only a year old, where they do like, the sun machine is coming down and we're going to have a party. Uh, but of course, it's just nah, 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 nah. It's his own version of that. Uh, one of the people who's singing in the background of that and doing the hand claps and all that is none other than a fella he had met called Mick Bronson. And this is a man who's going to figure extremely prominently on the rest of this show. Uh, because Mick Ronson was a guitarist from Hull. 
uh, a very unglamorous town in, I think, Midlands, England. And uh, David Bowie said, hey, you know what? Can you play guitar? And Mick Ronson was like, can I? Uh, as the world was about to discover, he could. And in fact, he doesn't actually play guitar on David Bowie's next single, which is a song called The Prettiest Star, which he wrote for his uh, the woman he was about to marry. A woman called Angela, Angela Barnett, uh, and uh, boy, Angie Bowie, uh, that's a story in and of itself that I don't really think is worth getting into here. Uh, That was quite the funny relationship. Uh, But the prettiest star, he got Mark Bolin of T-Rex to play on. And uh, Bolin does a pretty good job with the guitar, but the song I've never felt was too terribly distinguished. Uh, I think the most interesting thing about it is its B-side is this delightful little cameo called Conversation Piece, which is very much Bowie in his sort of sad kind of wispy folk tune where he talks about how he lives above a grocery store. The grocer only speaks, you know, Austrian, German, and he tries to talk to me and tries to be a friend. But I just I sit and watch the rain come down and I can't see the rain for the tears in my eyes. And I don't know. It's all rather maudlin, but I like it. And my essays like scattered on the floor Fulfill their needs just by being there And my hands shake, my head hurts My voice sticks inside my throat I'm invisible and dumb And no one will recall me And I can't see the water For the tears in my eyes The version he redid for Heathen Decades in the Future is actually excellent. It's yes, really good. It's really excellent. The song itself was strong. It was always a strong song. But yeah, interesting lyric. Uh, but of course, what happens when you bring a guy like Mick Ronson in? And you also get married and sort of lose the plot. The story of what comes next on this next album is that David Bowie was really not paying that much attention. For one of the very few times in his career, he didn't seem to have much motivation. He was bringing some musical ideas to Tony Visconti and to Mick Ronson and then basically checking out and canoodling with Angie over in the corner instead of getting down (laughs) to the business of writing lyrics. Uh, In fact, the most famous lyric on this album was written on the day the album was wrapped, the last second creation of a song uh, that was known under various working titles but finally became the title track for the album called The Man Who Sold the World. Upon the stair, we spoke of was and when. Although I wasn't there, he said I was his friend, which came as some surprise. I spoke into his eyes, I thought you died alone. What a change. 
this is from Space Oddity. This is what people said when they said, oh, he's just changing his form every time out. Because, okay, he does the Anthony Newley weird orchestral stuff on mm-hmm. his first album. Then he's like a folk singer on Space Oddity. And and now he's Led Zeppelin. <laughs> There's no way no, no, Half of this album is basically friggin' Led Zeppelin. Yeah. And I actually think that... Uh, that half of this album is pretty great. <laughs> but I think it's also a fairly flawed album. But this is the first one that people say, like, oh, well, this is where classic Bowie begins. Yeah, I mean, I've never known what to make of this album because it is so just out of left field. I mean, I think there are some strong songs on here. Uh, I mean, my favorite is All the Mad Men, which is lyrically very much a kind of... Uh, a very Bowie-ish, a kind of strange sci-fi, philosophical, dystopian kind of story about a future where everyone is basically thrown into insane asylums and like, he's so like, the crazy being crazy is being being insane and the reverse is true. It's it's all kind of cockamamie and kind of strange, but musically it's a really, really rich track with multiple sections that are all very different. Again, has kind of the vocoder in there and a weird bridge with some spoken stuff. It's really far out there, but it's pretty pretty cool actually. Die they tell me I can go They tell me I can blow To the far side of town Where it's pointless to be high Cause it's such a long way down So I tell them that I can fly I will scream I will break my arm I will do me harm I stand, foot in hand, talking to my wall. I'm not quite right at all, am I? Don't set me free, I'm as heavy as can be. Just my Librium and me, and my EST makes me. Um, and then some of the others, I mean, The Man Who Sold the World's a good, strong song. Obviously, many people are going to know that because of the Nirvana cover mm-hmm. on MTV Unplugged made made the song a, a kind of international, iconic hit. But, you know, a lot of people don't even know that Bowie wrote the song because, uh, uh, you know, it just came out of nowhere. No one expected that to show up. Um, uh, and, you know, the Superman is a really heavy kind of... Uh, more metalish type of tune that, that Bowie had had sitting around for a while. That's that's pretty good. And then you know, of course, I'll leave it. If either of you want to jump in on "Width of a Circle," the eight-minute long kind of most Led Zeppelin-y type song on here, like hearing that song come on after you've just listened to the Space Oddity <laughs> album, you, you can't help but be like, "Who the hell is this guy? What is it's, 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 it's straight up. It's just big guitar feedback note that." Yeah, you know, yeah. totally. It's like something off of Led Zeppelin two or something. It's it's just bizarre.
I think I think this album. I actually have sometimes said that this is the most overrated album in David Bowie's canon. I don't know if I. I sometimes there there are songs in here that I used to hate that I kind of like now. There's like this. There's some really goofy sci-fi premises. There's this song "Save Your Machine," which stars all right. the main character is President Joe. <laughs> uh, we never had a President Joe until just recently, <laughs> so now maybe it's newly relevant. I just hope Joe Biden does not invent a savior machine. Uh, because you know maybe then we'll have plagues inflicted upon us once he gets bored solving all of our problems. It's one of those the classic like Colossus the Forbin Project style like a supercomputer or Skynet basically the supercomputer right, right. decides that it's had enough of humanity and decides that oh uh, you know and the course is so like 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 funny it's like from the point of view of the computer singing like please don't believe in me please disagree with me like don't rely upon me. I might kill you all. It's actually really funny in its weird sincerity. Um, but it's memorable for all of that, right? It's logic's the wall. Give them food. How they adore till it cried in its boredom. stuff on here that doesn't really do a thing for me. like she shook me cold is is, is just like that's my least thing. favorite it, it, you mentioned zeppelin but like on that you even hear like yeah. deep purple or sabbath i mean that is that yeah. is just so derivative of all those bands and there's there are certain places uh, uh black country rock a little bit too but i think that's a much better song but uh she shook me cold i think is the most <laughs> it's the most derivative it's the most it's the song that most sounds like someone else was was in there doing stuff I mean, it barely has a tune. And I'll tell you this, I hate the Superman. I've never liked that song much. This is obviously during a period where, where Bowie is starting to get interested in various occult and, you know, Nietzschean philosophical things. Like, this is Man and Superman, but it's done in this weird kind of almost garish comic book style where, like, man would tear each other's flesh a chance to die, to turn to mold. It's about these, like, and of course, he sings it in that warbly Cockney accent, <laughs> and then there's these big, like, pompous drums behind him, bum, 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 ba, da, bum, 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 and then the big ooh ah voices. I don't know. It to me is 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 some of the most ridiculously stagey stuff of his entire career. Um, but I completely agree with Damon about all the Mad Men. I think that is by even better than man the man who sold the world the title track which is of course kind of <clears throat> the one song from this album that everyone knows i think all the mad men is actually the best song in this record and i think it's actually about his brother it's about terry uh terry jones uh his his half brother uh who famously and this is part of the legend of bowie you know if you read up enough about this he says like you know he's written so many songs about the sort of strain of mental illness that runs through his mother's side of the family and how you know terry literally had voluntarily checked himself into an insane asylum I mean, he was spending actually time visiting bowie at the time of this album and in fact the album's cover was originally the insane asylum that he was staying at 
Um, but then uh, they changed it to that famous man dress mm-hmm. one that has become sort of the standard cover and that I made a joke about at the beginning of the show. But that thing, there's some creepy, creepy moments on all the Mad Men, like where he says, you know, day after day, they take some brain away. And then in the background, you hear this like, freaked out calliope like and it's just like the the vibe that you get from it is like i am out of my mind that is what like you hear when you hear him singing that song you're like oh man this this person is clearly not mentally well and it's so perfectly conveyed in in just those those little like calliope or organ notes or whatever they are and then of course it goes into the much more hard rock zeppelin-y kind of stuff but this is the best sort of tribute to that kind of a sound the best possible kind of pastiche and yeah there's that spoken word bit in the middle that also i think works really well and then it ends again with that sort of a classically inscrutable david bowie touch where just the the fade out is them singing zane 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 ouvre la chaîne uh why i don't know i never (laughs) no one's ever satisfactorily explained it to me So it's so complex. There are so many different right. sections that mm-hmm. don't. I mean, there is a kind of verse chorus structure, but there are all these weird sort of quasi bridges. And then that conclusion is nothing like what came before. It's right. a really rich track. It really is. I mean, you know, the other one, of course, that has that same sort of sprawl is the one that opens the album, comes right before it, which is the width of a circle. Now, I'm not as much of a fan of this one as most David Bowie fanatics are. I love the opening, that descending riff, the dung, dung, da, 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 dung, dung, da, 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 dung, dung. That's really Mick Ronson's influence. I mean, that him really kicking that into gear, that's what he brought to David Bowie and the spiders from Mars were essentially coalescing around the time of this album two-thirds of them play on this album and they take that instrumentally to a much higher gear but i don't really much care for the uh, middle and ending sections of the song now i don't know if scott feels differently um I, I i would essentially agree with that the one thing i wanted to go back to mention is you know the, the spiders from mars and this this to me is the sound of the of the band actually sort of coalescing coming together i mean Tony biscotti plays bass here he would not continue in uh, the next uh, uh, version of the band but would re-enter Bowie's career not that long down the road but this is uh, I think I think Jeff mentioned you know Bowie had gotten married and was sort of checked out vocally and I think Viscani has told stories where you know Bowie'd stop by and hand him a few chords and say you guys just kind of work things out and they would. And so you, you hear like Black Country Rock and With of a Circle and some others that really are, are, are almost more about the band becoming an entity uh, and, and playing together and figuring out the way that they were going to sound 
uh, behind behind Bowie. Uh, and with a circle at eight minutes is a lot of that. It's a very nice, nasty guitar riff from Ronson. Big, thick, big bass notes. Uh, Black Country Rock, very, very similar. Very simple, but powerful song. Ronson has some really good guitar work. That's one I believe was originally like a 10 minute long jam, very, very similar to Width of a Circle. And they got that down to three and a half minutes or so on the final album version of the of the song. Running Gun Blues uh, is the driving, driving bass line. And so, you know, as you look at, you know, going from what came before this to what's going to come after it, it does stand out a bit. But that that seems to me to be uh, reflective of just the, the power that essentially was handed to these band members because Bowie was, again, just a little bit more checked out than he perhaps ever would be in his career. In many ways, it's like the least Bowie album uh, of his career, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, I think before we leave it, I just do want to, you know, say another word in praise of the title track. The Man Who Sold the World is a very dark and unsettling song, if you listen to it. Of course, we all know the Nirvana version. That's the first one I heard, too. I mean, everybody was listening to Nirvana back in 1994. Um, but Bowie's version is far superior. And there's something about, like, the coldness of that guitar riff. You know, the... And the way the whole thing just sort of relentlessly chugs along. But with Bowie singing in the background, this lyric about sort of dissociative, like, you know, disorder, where, you know, it's... Uh, you know, he, he's basically meeting himself... He's he's walking up the stairs and he meets himself going down the stairs. All right, and it's it's like a doppelganger moment, and it's it's deeply disturbing because it feels like it's almost a, like a visitation from a devil, tempting him. The man who sold the world is is actually almost like a reference to Christ himself being tempted in the desert. You know, and Satan says, you know, I'll give you all of this if you uh, you know kneel down and worship me. That's the man who sold the world. Um, but oh no, not me. Uh, I never lost control, and that almost feels like it would become something of a, a an unwitting, uh, you know, an epitaph for his career. That he never lost control, even when he was at his worst and most, you know, addled with drugs and unhealthy. He always retained some certain sense of himself and his control over himself, despite his fears of mental illness, despite his drug abuse, despite everything. That first emerges. You first hear that epitomized on the man who sold the world. go back to what scott said about how this album doesn't sound like it sounds the least like a bowie album and maybe that's because he was checked out <clears throat> the next album he does again couldn't be more different <laughs> from the one that just came before it and yet still very quintessentially a bowie album but also very much a song writerly album 
And I think this is going to be maybe on all three of our lists uh, when we get to the end of this part of the show. And that is, of course, 1971's majestic Hunky Dory, uh, which has, I think, maybe my favorite Bowie cover of all time. It's either that or Heroes. I love the cover of this album where he looks basically like a Lauren Bacall figure or something like that (laughs) rather than like, you know, David Bowie. He's got the long flowing hair and he's like running his hands through it. And it's got the, sort of the, the pointillistic, you know, you know, you know, painting uh, on the photograph. But of course, this is the album that that has the first Bowie song that everybody who does Beyond Space Out of the Year is the first album song that everyone knows. Everyone knows from the opening notes of Changes. This is an album that is just uh, his, I guess, essentially his pop masterpiece. You can say he's had many rock masterpieces, but uh, because of the presence of Rick Wakeman, everyone's favorite uh, yes keyboardist, <laughs> this is his pop album. And of course, Wakeman thinks this is the best album he's ever played on, including every yes album he's played on. So he has a pretty high opinion of it as well. What do you guys think of Hunky Dory? Well, I, I it is uh, it is peak Bowie for me. There's only uh, one other album that we'll get to in episode two that I think rivals it, at least for me. Um, uh, I even consider side one to be pretty much a perfect side. That's starting with changes and ending with quicksand track six. Uh, you got to say that in the uh, post <laughs> side era of albums. Um, I just, you know, not everything on side one is great. I mean, eight line poem is, is literally an eight line poem sent to a kind of languid uh, piano and guitar accompaniment, but it's a nice bridge between Oh You Pretty Things and then Life on Mars, which is one of the greatest of Bowie's songs. Um, I don't think I'll actually read this quote that I have because it's a little long, but but Rick Wakeman has gone on the record in a lot of interviews talking about the experience of, of, of Bowie playing him uh, Life on Mars before it was recorded and, you know, when he was showing him his new songs because he wanted him to play on the album. And Wakeman just being totally blown away by this, that, like, the melody was amazing, the chord changes were just completely not what you would think to do it like if you just look at them written out and say this is one song well how will this sound with this sequence of chords you would think wow that's going to be a mess and yet it all somehow works and it works beautifully it's a god-awful small affair to the girl with the mousy hair but her mommy is yelling no Daddy has told her to go But her friend is nowhere to be seen Now she walks through her sunken dream To the seat with the clearest view And she's hooked to the silver screen But the film is a sad thing for For she's lived it ten times or more She could spit in the eyes of fools Take a look at the low man, beating up the wrong guy. Oh man, wonder if you'll ever know who's in the best-selling show. 
is a is a beautiful kind of <clears throat> song that could be sung to like your kid anytime it's one of these songs a little bit could like, be sung uh, uh, <laughs> yes absolutely i mean it's a little bit like uh, like literally uh, when my wife was pregnant and and she just and my little guy was just a giant bump inside of her i'd lean up to the bump and i'd be like will you stay in the lover's story if you stay you won't be sorry it's the most oh gosh i, I i'm interrupting you but i'm gonna have to come back to this song i it, this is a song that i love way more than i probably should will you stay in the lover's story Stay, you won't be sorry Cause we believe in you Soon you'll grow So take a chance With a couple of cooks Hung up on romancing Will you stay in a lover's story? If you stay, you won't be sorry Cause we believe in you Soon you'll grow so take a chance with a couple of kooks I'm up on romancing No, it's it's an amazing song. Uh, beautiful little song about, you know, about uh, kids and a family. It's just great. Very uh, not what you would expect from David Bowie, depending on how you look at him. And then Quicksand ends the side, which is just lyrically like, I don't know what's going on there. It is it, there are references to so many things. There's Alistair Crawley, Heinrich Himmler, Himmler, Churchill, Nietzsche's Ubermensch is in there. Like it's it's just it's like this is every book I've been reading and thinking about for two years, and I'm sinking in the quicksands of my thought about it. <laughs> and this song has three again, three very distinct sections to them. Each, each to it and each of these sections is very different than the rest uh the chorus is this huge kind of swooning pop tune like something it's kind of bowie's version of something off of elton john's self-titled album that came out like a couple of years before this very singer songwritery but again very complex harmonically very interesting you know what I love about it the most, Damon, is how upbeat it is. It's the most sort of life-affirming chorus that I'll ever hear uh, from basically in the entirety of 1970s pop. Don't believe in yourself. Don't <laughs> deceive with belief. Knowledge comes with death's release. <laughs> uh, it's the kind of thing you'd expect to hear on, like, George Harrison's uh, All Things Must Pass. It's almost well, no, but the way he says it, after talking about, you know, Heinrich Himmler and, like, Aleister Crowley, it's almost like a council of suicide or something like that. It's really down. Really I know, dark. but then the melody is very kind of flowery and beautiful, and you just have to melody. think, what is going on here? It's so weird, but I love it. It's it's far out. It's an amazing side. Don't believe in yourself. Don't conceal with belief. Knowledge comes with death's release. Ah, 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 ah. 
and side two is great too and we'll get to that i'll i'll pause now and my and my swooning and <laughs> let someone else jump in it's a it's a great side i think he's got a more perfect side that we'll talk about before this particular episode is over but yeah, but you can tell I'm not uh, overly effusive in my in my praise of the previous two albums. They're they're good. Hunky Dory is just a massive leap. It's a it's a quantum leap forward. And there are there are three things early on that totally stick out to me. Um, uh, essentially, the three songs that uh, uh, that Damon didn't didn't talk a ton about uh, on that first, first side. Changes is a is, is a is a perfect pop song. It, it's just a fantastic song from start to finish it's a song that i actually put aside for a few years when i was working in chicago and we would do these you know montages uh every time a chicago uh, sports uh, coach or manager was fired that happened a lot so every time we we had when we do like a montage to changes because it change in the manager's office and so i got i got tired of it a little bit but coming back with some fresh ears a few years ago there's nothing about that song that's not perfect uh you know from from the beginning to the to the that sax uh, over the over the over the coda, uh, I love I love those uh, uh, those descending slow bass chords over the, the fast choppy piano chords right in, in, in the chorus where the, the bass goes doom 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 doom. Uh, wonderful chorus. It's a it's a fun song. Uh, Wakeman's piano part is fantastic. It changes is just a really flawless, flawless pop song to start. He also can do, he's learning how to deliver an iconic line in his voice too. He's finding yeah. his singing voice. Look where out, he you rock like, and rollers! Exactly. Just, I was looking to see it. Look out, you rock and rollers! Pretty soon now, you're gonna get older. Like that's just that's the first Bowie moment lyrically. Yeah. I think of his entire career. Yeah. yeah. So that, I mean, that's one. Two, uh, oh, you know, Oh You Pretty Things, one of my favorite Bowie songs from this era. Tremendous track. That 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 moment, that, that pow moment when that full band jumps in after that beginning is just a powerful, powerful moment in his career and on this album. The dynamics that begin to enter into the songwriting and the way that this band is playing together is, is, is fantastic. And then Eight Line Poem, which Damon dismissed a bit. It's a little uh, lighter, sure, but I adore Ronson's guitar line, that country tinge guitar line. I hear that sing because you have Wickman's piano and, and Ronson's uh, guitar. I, I hear that same sort of like Stonesy interplay that you'd hear between maybe Keith and, you know, Nicky Hopkins playing something on those Stones records from around the same time. This very moody, reflective kind of. Uh, kind of instrumental track on, on Eight Line Poem, which I, I really like so much. That whole first side is fantastic. You get into, into side two, and uh, you know, song for Bob Dylan is this flawless take on essentially a Dylan band, you know, Dylan slash the band sound. 
it's done so well uh, with Ronson doing, you know, Robbie Robertson's part essentially on the guitar and these wonderful lyrics. Uh, Queen, you know Bitch. what I love. You know what I love the most about song for Bob Dylan is how it, it truly captures the essence of 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 Bob Dylan and the nature of his music. Because, I mean, let's be honest, Scott. What was Bob Dylan really about, if not fighting off villainous painted ladies and super brains? <laughs> I've never understood that lyric. I think that's actually the weakest song on the album. Uh, but I, just because I always get a laugh out of that. Here she comes. <laughs> here she comes again. Say, but what's the brow of the super brain? I just imagine like a, a Castlevania enemy or something like that, like a giant, <laughs> like you know, like brain, literally the brain with an eye, and like you know, like you know, tendrils falling down from it or something like that. I don't know. It feels like he was watching sci-fi. <laughs> I will, I will say for the lyric in that song, I don't even know if this is accurate because I don't know what how you translate it into sound. But of course, Dylan's voice is is one of the most distinctive things about him. And to say with a voice like sand and glue, like that, it, from the second I heard that line, I have never forgotten it, and it will always be etched in my head. <laughs> it is actually a great characterization. I have yeah, I mean, again, I don't know if that's really how I would describe Dylan's voice, but I just love the image it's yeah. so, so uh vivid and specific that i love it that whole three song section of hunky doria on side two you know it opens with fill your heart which is this weird biff rose thing which is, everybody always dismisses as the worst song on the album i kind of like it just for rick wakeman's amazing piano playing just up and down the piano just so many little like you know runs on the scale on it and also the weirdness there's, there's just something kind of a little bit disturbing about it because he's talking about like you're going to lose your head you're going to lose your head you're going to lose your mind and then you'll be free it doesn't sound like something really pleasant that david is trying to sell you on <laughs> if you think about it right i feel like that must have been a little bit intentional because he's too smart to do anything other than that but then of course you have that the, you know the tribute to my to my heroes you know the first is annie warhol which is a fun little song uh a kind of a kind of a little bit more uh, of a backhanded compliment than you might think you know andy warhol silver screen can't tell them apart at all he's commenting on the artifice of andy warhol's you know entire artistic you know presentation and saying that basically like you know there's is, is there anything is there any difference between can I detect the humanity in what he does? No, not really. You know, he, he's he's fascinated by the sort of the, the quotidian nature of, of Warhol's art, which is kind of a backhanded compliment. Um, 
song for Bob Dylan, of course. Yeah, funny. Uh, but then, of course, there's Queen Bitch, which everyone loves. It's the big, it's the only really big rock number on this record. It's the Velvet Underground tribute. It's basically Bowie saying, I can do Lou Reed, you know, and I can do my own version of White Light, White Heat, or I'm Waiting for the Man. And yeah, you know, I just love every time it gets into that chorus, you know, she's so swishy in her satin and tat and a frock coat and bippity boppity hat. That kind of a lyric, you just heard me say it. Imagine it was possible to deliver that and make it sound like a badass rock number. And that's what Bowie <laughs> gets away with. Because it sure shouldn't be that way if you read it on the page. Everyone loves Queen Bitch for a reason. It's clearly to me the highlight of sight, too. Yeah, I lay down a while. Look at my hotel wall. And he's down on the street, so I throw both his bags down the hall. And I'm phoning a cab, cause my stomach feels small. There's a taste in my mouth, and it don't taste at all. It could have been me, oh yeah, it could have been me. Why didn't I say, why didn't I say? No, 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 she's so twisty in a sad in a bad. In a rock, oh, and a You mentioned earlier the way he is learning to deliver a line, the, the, the tossed off way he gets to, you know, if she says she can do it, she can do it. She, she don't make false claims. It's, it's a wonderful vocal. The vocal inflections uh, are starting to come to the forefront on a number of yeah, these songs. Yeah, it, it almost sounds like it's like street talk that's been yeah. put into a lyric. It sounds very casual, very off the cuff which is obviously what he was trying to do because he was trying to get that sort of Lou Reed sensibility out of it, and he succeeded in doing it. Um, now, does anybody have any thoughts on the ridiculously crabbed and almost impossible to parse concluding song on this album, which a lot of people claim is one of his best songs of all time? I think it, it ranks. It would go on to one of my greatest hit CDs. Uh, that's the Bewley Brothers, a song about which... Uh, reams and reams of words have been spent and nobody, Bowie himself refused to ever get too specific about it, but it was obviously a very important song to him. He even named his publishing company after it. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if I have much to, to add as far as trying to illuminate exactly what it's about, but it is a great song. I mean, it is, it is, um, it has a kind of gravitas to it. It's there at the end of the of the album. It's so striking how dramatic it is with just the the quiet acoustic guitar and Bowie's delivery that then goes into to this kind of haunted, uh, just haunted, uh, crazy. I don't know the chorus. I I don't know what to make of it exactly because it's. It it's just it, it's uh, I'm sorry the words are fading me uh, failing me here it just it, it's very powerful it makes you feel like something very very big and very haunting and upsetting is going on and the lyrics are so serious what oh you're gonna sing it for me? i know i'm gonna spare you it uh, actually oh, okay. I, I i definitely that was one of the first songs i learned to play on acoustic guitar once i picked up the guitar so yeah i mean i i i'll just read just the lyrics here i again what exactly it means i assume it's very personal to to david 
Bowie. I Again, it's like, a, lot, a lot of it. The only thing he's ever said about it is that it is definitely part of it is about his relationship with Terry as his half-brother. That's right. all he's really ever well, that, let the, on. Last, the last verse goes like this. And now the dress is hung, the, the ticket pawned, the factor max that proved the fact is melted down and woven on the edge, edging of my pillow. Now my brother lays upon the rocks. He could be dead. He could be not. He could be you. He's chameleon, comedian, Corinthian, and caricature. Shooting up pie in the sky, the Buley brothers. What the hell does that mean? I don't know, but it moves me somehow. And my brother lays upon the rocks. He could be dead, he could be not, he could be you. He's chameleon, comedian, Corinthian, and caricature. Shooting up high in the sky, Julia Brothers. In the feeble, in the bad. And then, of course, the ending, which 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 is the greatest use of the vocoder in the in the Bowie catalog, I think, um, where it becomes kind of like a cross between the laughing gnome and the exorcist. It's like just like demons coming out from like very low barking devil like sounds to little uh, sort of uh, little gnomey uh, sounds going jumping around and and just the, the refrain of please come away just for the die. Uh, almost like you imagine like uh, the young Bowie going to the institution where his son has been, uh, sorry, his brother has been committed as a schizophrenic and like wanting to spend the day with him. But it's this terrifying experience because of the mental illness and being drawn to him, but afraid of him. I don't know. Something like that is what it evokes for me, at least. I think the one last thing I want to comment about before we leave Hunky Dory is that uh, I think not enough has been said properly in praise of life on mars and i'll say because when the first time i heard this song was actually on a greatest hits album uh i i bought it and i heard it and i was flattened by it and what flattened me about it was what had not ever necessarily come through to me about bowie's music at that point until this moment the sense of wonder the sense of actually wonder and like magic that was possible for him to evoke and him to reach. And of course you get that <clears throat> in the magnificent Rick Wakeman part, but you also get that in the strings. The strings were done by Mick Ronson. This is not a very heavy guitar album. Uh, so what did Rono do? He, he just wrote all those, those string charts that you hear on these songs on fill your heart on quicksand and on life on Mars. That's him doing that. Um, 
but also the lyric has always just sort of intrigued me. The melancholy of the lyric about a girl who's looking to escape from her workday life. So she goes to the theater hoping to see some magic up on the screen. But, but the film is a crashing bore because she's seen it ten times or more. It's been written ten times or more. It's about to be writ again. And then he goes through all the like the cliches about like, you know, sailors fighting in the dance hall. Oh, look at those cavemen go, the lawman beating on the wrong guy, and all of that. Um the the wonder that comes off of that lyric about you know going to try to find transcendence and and ending up kind of disappointed, but the result is a song that is genuinely transcendent and is filled with wonder. Uh, I was always just taken by that paradox, and and that was the song that really kind of ignited my true like forever love and fandom of David Bowie. But the film is a sad thing more Cause I wrote it ten times or more It's about to be written again As I ask you to focus on sailors Fighting in the dance hall Oh man, look at those cavemen go It's a freaky shallow Take a look at the This is an album that's full of songs that are nearly at that level, and I just think it's so funny that when, when Bowie actually recorded this album and released it, he immediately told his record label, uh, said, I'm not going to be promoting this album. I'm not going to be touring on this album. I'm not going to be playing shows. You know, you probably shouldn't waste your time putting any money into this album, which is stunning. You put out a work of this quality, this magnitude, and you just say that. Why did he say that? Because he had something else a Bruin. He'd had a Bruin as far back as before Hunky Dory. And in fact, he had demoed a song called Ziggy Stardust before he even went into the studio to record Hunky Dory. He demoed a bunch of other stuff, songs called Moon Age Daydream, Hang On to Yourself. Um, the point is, is that he knew that his real big play was coming into focus. And what was this? This is an album, well, I don't know. Even Bowie himself laughed about many times. He's like, if you try to like actualize this into a plot, you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, the entire concept of this song, of the album is contained in the song, Ziggy Stardust. Oh, really? Yeah. It's it's like the rest of the album is like barely fitting into anything like a kind of concept or plot. 
It's, it's um, funny. There's there's an outtake from the album that's like way more conceptually unified with the Ziggy Stardust theme called Sweet Head. Yes. Great song. Uh, than anything else on the album. But what is it about? It's really about megalomania, in my opinion. That's my take on it, right? My take has every right to be wrong, right? But I've always saw it as, as, as you know, I said at the beginning of the show, is like, you know, Bowie always accused of playing personas, but it's really a lot of confessional material in his music if you if you go read beneath the various layers of encoding. And then only Ziggy Stardust was this era where he was playing a character. But even this album is like an expression of his desire to just absolutely conquer the world. This is the era where he hired Tony DeFreeze as his manager. And, you know, he made the determination that, like, well, if I want to be a star, I have to act like I'm already a star. So he'd hire people to hold doors open for him when he went outdoors to, like, restaurants. And he'd, like, you know, stage, like, like mini, like, riots of fans that weren't real. They were just paid, <laughs> you know. you know, And then he'd be you know, always travel in a limousine. You know, he'd have to blow his money to do it. But the whole point is that if you want people to take you seriously as the next big thing, you have to act like, you know, Look the part, be the part, basically, is the idea here. And of course, this is when he also gave those famous interviews in the British press about like how I'm gay. And that was a huge scandal back then. You know, I think homosexuality had only actually just been decriminalized a couple of years prior to that. Um, and, and so this is the beginning of the whole like, you know, glam rock, you know, gender bending homosexuality phase of David Bowie's career about which there's a lot that could be said. But you know, I don't know how much, you know, the sociological content and people are really interested on in this show. Um but yeah, to me, the album is about stardom. It's about megalomania. It's about somebody who thinks maybe they're an alien, all right, or not. But they come down and they think that they can be the the new uh, leper messiah, the rock god. Uh, and then they actually end up getting consumed by their arrogance and their pride and essentially devoured by their audience at the end. Uh, and hence rock and roll suicide. That's all I've been able to take out of it. I think the bigger takeaway is that this is just a batch of incredibly well-written songs. She kneels before the grave, a brave son who gave his life to save the slogan that hovers between the headstone and her eyes, for they penetrate her grieving. Do love a boy and girl the talking you. I'm not 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I adore this album. Um, if, you know, I said side one of Hunky Dory, I consider to be a perfect side. I can't say that about side one here because I really don't think it ain't easy. The Ron Davies cover really belongs on this album. I like um, that. It, it, yeah, it, it, I, I, when you're putting out a big statement of a record that's like trying to at least pretend to tell a coherent story, you don't add a cover. I don't know. It strikes <laughs> me as sort of off kilter. Um, it, it just it doesn't work for me. But if I love Lady Stardust, which opens side two, if that closed side one, then side one would be absolutely a perfect side. I think five years soul love, Moon Age Daydream, and Starman are just one knockdown great song after another. It's uh, it's just fantastic. And then the second side does sort of have, you know, the rudiments of the story. You don't really have, other than five years setting the scene on side one, the rest of it, it's not clear precise. I mean, Starman tells something about some alien coming down, but it, it doesn't really hold together much. But then once you get to Star, Hang On To Yourselves, Ziggy Stardust, Suffragette City, and Rock and Roll Suicide, that sort of forms a kind of suite of songs yeah. that are telling the story that Jeff is mentioning, like about you know, he, here's a rock star, he's, 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 going, he's going higher and higher, he's going to the top, and then it just consumes him and he, come, he falls down. Like that rising and falling arc is there pretty clearly. Uh, you know, a lot of the great rock opera slash concept albums of rock history don't really work as narrative that well. Um, I mean, and, remember like Eyesight to the Blind from Tommy? Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, what was that doing in there? <laughs> exactly. That's another example of a cover in the middle of like a rock opera that's telling a distinctive story. Like it doesn't, it doesn't right. really, doesn't really work for me at least. I mean, you know, it ain't easy. It might be a fine song. It just, I don't think it works in the album, but, but on the whole though, this is, this is really Bowie's, you know, great statement of a record. It it really kind of marks the beginning for me of like total classic Bowie. This begins the big story, and uh, it, and and it's just a great album. What and what a great title! The rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust <laughs> and the Spiders from Mars. It's like one of the longest, biggest mouthfuls of an album title in rock history, and uh, it's just great. He's overflowing with great songs at this point, um, and the ones that don't make this album are excellent. I want to come back to that in, in a moment. But you know, the album itself is so solid, and, and something I love about Ziggy Stardust is I, I think the sequencing is just impeccable. Like the, from, from the way this album ebbs and flows throughout five years is uh, about as good of an album opener as you'll find the way that Everything fades in, crescendos beautifully. The vocals go from calm to uh, kind of freaking out, right? Because the earth is coming to a close. Uh, five years. We got five years until things are falling apart. The beginning when, I think Damon had mentioned this earlier, when we, we find out how people hear the news and the, the, the newsman on TV and how people are reacting, the sour, uh, sorrowful strings and this very sparse drum. Five years opens the album on a fantastic note and if we just fast forward to the very end i mean rock and roll suicide is a tremendous closer to the album it's a it's a journey though the narrative isn't exactly clear you know from one song to the next necessarily the um i guess the the emotional journey you go on through the album is solid from from start to finish there's there's four songs here 
with the word star in the title, and then you also have Rock and Roll Suicide, so Jeff's theory about what it's kind of about makes a lot of sense uh, to me. Uh, I mean, Starman's a great song, that, that guitar part, which is just so beautiful and lodges in your brain. I think Starman wasn't even supposed to be on the album, right? It was, it was a, kind of a, a request for a single from the label that ended up working out pretty well. So let's see the last song recorded for the record. And of course, yep. the, the, the joy of Starman is that it's, you know, somewhere over the rainbow. Starman waiting in the sky mm-hmm. somewhere over the <laughs> rainbow. And I think Bowie himself actually would throw in references to like, you know, <laughs> you know Judy Garland and stuff like that when he would perform the song. Because <laughs> even he probably didn't intend to do it when he wrote it. It was just like one of those things that works in your subconscious. Yeah. But yeah. Hey, you know what? There's a reason everyone loves Somewhere Over the Rainbow because that's, that's a great right. chorus. <laughs> it's solid. It's solid. Uh... Solid as hell. Suffragette City is one of my favorite Bowie songs. It's just an exhilarating one from start to finish. A uh, song that was offered to Mott the Hoople, and I get what they took uh, uh, the other one instead. All the young dudes, all, all the young yeah. dudes instead worked out okay. But Suffragette City is a great song. You know, the Velvet Underground references again with the Hey Man, which is straight from White Light, White Heat. Uh, but the, the chug, the crunch of the music, that ARP synthesizer, which is there, kind of sounded, sounded like distorted horns. Uh, is great. Might not even be on the album. Jeff mentioned, uh, well, well, first, you know, Velvet Goldmine's a great uh, track that was not on the album. And then Sweet Head that Jeff already mentioned. It's just the perfect Ronson guitar riff. And you know why it didn't make the album. And you know why no one even knew about it really until it was released again in 1990. People didn't remember it existed. The lyrics are just so nasty. Uh, you know, it's oral sex references, but slang and all sorts. It's just a ferocious Also blasphemy. Song. Until there was rock, you only had God. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's such sassy stuff. But yeah, again, conceptually, it's much more in line with like the themes of the album than like, yeah. you know, yeah, Star, It Ain't Easy. I don't know why it was never released. I mean, well, I know, but yeah. I shouldn't. Bowie said, I think after everyone found it in 1990s, I think the very simple quote was, uh, I don't think RCA wanted that one. 
Um, and it's pretty <laughs> obvious why that might not be a label favorite. Um, Sharing a label with Elvis Presley and putting yeah. out, you know, specifically like, you know, blasphemous gay sex songs. Yeah, probably <laughs> not. I'm tough as glass and clean as night. Well, if it looks good love, we can love all right. I'm your rubber peacock angelic whore. I'm a rod iron face upon the wall. I mean, clearly, yeah. as I mentioned, with those the unreleased songs and, and the way this album sequenced, he's overflowing with ideas at this point. And it all comes out on Ziggy Stardust, which is really a great album. I mean, there's some lyrics on here that do still... St- For me, Ziggy Stardust is one of those albums that unfortunately sort of has perished through overplay in my mind. It's the first Bowie album I ever got. It's the Bowie album that everyone knows. It's the Bowie album you get if you don't like David Bowie, but you feel obligated to own a David Bowie album. Right, so it's as, as familiar as any of his work is ever going to be, um, and, and and so I, you know, been listening to it since I was sixteen, seventeen years old. And to be fair, I probably heard it too many times, and that's not fair to it, because there are lyrics here that still do take me back every time I listen to this record, which is not as much as I listen to his later albums anymore. Uh, five years in particular, Damon mentioned it right at the start of the show and how it floored him, and it floors me too. Uh, just you know, those little vignettes about how people are reacting, like the news guy wept as he told us that Earth is really dying, yeah, and yeah. you know that the girl my age went off her head, and beat some tiny children. If the black hadn't have pulled her off, I think she might have killed them. Then there's the cop who's on the street just kneels to kiss the feet of the priest while a queer throws up at the sight of that. These great little observational lines that feel like yeah, yeah, like you could see a movie of that, right? You could see that being filmed, that cinematic tone of it just gets you and the hysteria the hysteria at the end of five years where it's like you know five years is this great string arrangement by ronson they're working with ken scott now he's like former engineer for the beatles actually they're at emi and uh you know you know ronson gave him this chart and, and they're playing these very screechy squeaky sounds it kind of almost reminded me of the end of space oddity hmm. uh you know the yeah there's a really queasy feel that he gets out of those those charts that is just perfect for like the, the sort of the dissolution society dissolving in panic essentially it's like the news comes over yeah we're all doomed and so everybody just starts <laughs> to lose it sort of you know slowly but then it accelerates and it gets worse and worse
But of course, right, once that's set up, um, what does that have to do with soul love? I don't know, but I love soul love. And everybody loves Moon Age Daydreams, Starman we already talked about. Um, the one I want to mention, just to, you know, my last thought on, on Ziggy as an album is that Rock and Roll Suicide is a fantastic song that I would always sing to myself whenever I would light up a cigarette in college, thinking I was very clever. You know, time oh, takes yeah, a cigarette yeah. and puts it in your mouth. And, and yes, you know, that was me thinking I was the coolest kid on the block. It's uh, probably why I didn't have a lot of girlfriends in freshman year. Um, but what I also think must be recognized about that song is how it, it, it shows the influence of another one of, of Bowie's real loves. Well, two of them, really, actually. Jacques Brel, which the song is clearly based on. You know, he says, you know, give me your hands because you're not alone. You're not alone. Uh, that's straight off of a Jacques Brel song. He, he's, the, uh, the Mort Schumann translations of Jacques Brel's work. Jacques Brel was a French chanson writer of the, of the 60s and the 50s. He wrote, unfortunately, he wrote songs like Terry Jacks' Season in the Sun, uh, <laughs> which is a terrible, terrible song. Wasn't even that good in the original French version, trust me. But more importantly, he heard them through Scott Walker. Now, I occasionally had a chance to mention Scott Walker, who's one of my favorite artists. Would love to do him on the show someday. Bowie will, in fact, cover one of his songs much later in his career, do a great job of it as well. Um, but uh, Walker was known in Britain for popularizing Jacques Brel's work. He put him, several of his songs on his first three albums, and they're all fantastic. You're not alone! And you really hear that Jacques Brel and Scott Walker influence on his next album, which is more or less basically Ziggy Goes to America. It's the way David Bowie was happy to characterize it himself. Uh, and that, of course, is Aladdin Sane. Uh, this is another one I think we're all very, very fond of and with very good reasons. This takes, you know, it, you know, David Bowie thought Ziggy Stardust was like a really, you know, balls to the wall, upfront rock album. Well, Aladdin Sane makes Ziggy Stardust look like a very polite, reserved, well curated and crafted <laughs> piece of uh, polite rock tunage. Uh, this is actually loud nasty, wacky, fun music. This is as rock, out and out rock. Yeah. I guess out and out stones. And maybe even a little more wild in some ways than the stones that uh, David Bowie ever got. I uh I have nothing bad to say about about uh Aladdin Sane except maybe for ironically enough that, that rather weird cover of yeah. Let's Spend the Night Together, <laughs> which I'm not a fan of. All right. Who I set it up on the tee. Who wants to bat this one into the stands? This is uh, uh, I mean you you go ahead Scott if you want. Yeah, I, I I I really love Aladdin Sane. I mentioned earlier that I think there's one more perfect uh, side than the first side of Hunky Dory and that's the first side of Aladdin Sane. Uh watch that man into the title track Driving Saturday, Panic in Detroit, Cracked Actor. That's killer from start to finish. Um uh, Jeff mentioned you know Ziggy goes to America. It is 
very stonesy. The production on Aladdin Sane is so much thicker. The drums slap a bit more on Aladdin Sane than, than Ziggy Stardust. It's a fuller, richer sound. Watch That Man uh, is essentially rocks off, right? And it, it essentially rocks off from, from Exile, done by Bowie and, and Ronson. You have the and same. And burying his voice in the mix the way the yes, Stones would do. Exactly too, which the same. I way. love so much. The, I guess the record company asked him to remix "Watch That Man" with a uh, with a with a stronger vocal line, and uh, ended up using the the one where the vocals were buried anyway. So I don't know what that says about anything, but it uh, "Watch That Man" is a great, great lead off track. Again, very, very similar to the rocks off from from Exile. saying the title track man that is such a weird off-kilter unexpected song mike garcon is uh, playing piano on on this album and he steals this track that that off-kilter strange piano solo almost playing against the music right it, it's a crazy thing to play against the melody which uh again the title of the album is aladdin sane a lad insane uh, I, I don't know. For some reason, I see that on that track. That, that piano is so perfect, and yet you would not ever expect that to be the part that's played on that track. Yeah, the thing about it is it does sound a lot like a cat walking on a keyboard, you know, <laughs> that, that kind of craziness. But when you listen to it more carefully, you realize she's throwing in all sorts of like little illusions. There's like some Gert Gershwin in there. Yeah. There's Rhapsody in Blue in there. And then there's yes. like Tequila, you know. Remember uh, from uh, the old Pee Wee Herman? <laughs> Uh, film, you know, da -da 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 -da. there's a, there's that he quotes that in the thing, and then there's like on Broadway, of course, which yeah. you know, yeah. Peter Gabriel himself would use a little later for the land lies down on Broadway. So like, yeah, it's 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 both completely insane and also full of these these interesting allusions to other songs, and ends up sounding like I think Bowie said he was like I was going trying to go for like a society in complete decadence that doesn't know that another world war is around the corner and all of their their illusions of comfort are about to be destroyed which is why i think that's titled it's like 197 the subtitle is right, Aladdin, right. 1913 1938 1970 question mark <laughs> you know he was wrong thankfully uh, you know uh, he was wrong about that third world war but that was the idea he was going for and it yeah. does get that you almost hear like the you know the the cocktail glasses clinking and all these sort of demented socialites yeah. you know on a cruise ship or something like that out of their minds
album is sleazier. The 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 tone, Ronson's tone on essentially the entire album is just so dirty and just beautiful. I love it. Panic. That's cracked actor to me in particular. Cracked That's actor in particular, yep. And then I, I, Panic in Detroit, the first 20 to 25 seconds of Panic in Detroit is so hard to beat in my book. I love uh, the beginning of Panic in Detroit, the whole song, but that, that beginning 20 seconds when everything's coming into focus uh, and you've got that, again, that descending, uh, the walking bass line, the verses, the Bo Diddley beat, hard grinding melody, a lyric inspired by the Detroit riots in 1967, I guess getting some information from Iggy Pop. Um, th- th- that huge, huge riff, Bowie howling, the screaming in the background. What a song. Dactor closing that first uh, first sound of the album. Those huge power chords in the harmonica uh, to start smack, baby smack. The story of uh, an aging film star, his life in decline, and a, uh, a uh, interaction with uh, uh, with uh, with uh, sex work prostitute. Let's be right. honest here. Uh, you know, remember he was like, "I was the best of the the cleanest star you ever had." Uh, but you know now he's he's old and fly below. And there's that horribly wonderful line: "Forget that I'm 50 because you just got paid." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh damn, that's <laughs> tough. And uh, and and, and this, the nastiness of Ronson's guitar tone hammers that thing home too. Wonderful. That whole first side, I don't find a flaw in anything. Didn't even mention Drive-In Saturday. Someone can talk more about that. I don't. There's not a flaw in the first side of Aladdin Sane. The cover of Let's Spend the Night Together is not a great one on the back half, but there are still some really good moments. Gene Genie, of course. I like Lady Grin and Soul, which to me sounds a little like Roxy Music uh, to, to, to close out Aladdin Sane. This is, man, I really, really go back. To, I've gone back to this one specifically 
multiple times over the past couple of weeks just to listen, not, not to listen to prep, just to listen for fun, just to listen to the, the sleeves, the dirt, that guitar. It is just a fantastic record. I'm only going to have one thing to say about this album, not because I don't like it at all, but because I just feel like, you know, you guys can cover the rest and, and you've already done a pretty good job, Scott. Uh, my favorite song on this album by far is Time. Uh, mm-hmm. I think Time is magnificent and it kind of ties in with what I said earlier about, you know, Bowie's you know, continental influences are showing the Jacques Brel, the Scott Walker is coming through. Well, this is his attempt at writing that kind of a chanson and it's just got this magnificently sort of almost german reminds me of like you know 20s weimar era germany you know like with the piano line uh and then you know he he sings in his most sort of you know salacious and sassy voice time is waiting in the wings you know he speaks of senseless things but his script is you and me boy the breathiness of which he delivers that (laughs) And but the best part about it is not only the piano by Garson, but also this ridiculous Mick Ronson guitar solo that comes in at the end, where you know Bowie kind of in his most sort of dramatic is saying, you know, you know, perhaps you're smiling now, smiling through this darkness, but all I have to give is guilt for dreaming. And then Mick Ronson literally bursts into "Ode to Joy." It's <laughs> it's "Ode to Joy" by Beethoven, and then we should be home by now. Just the most most wonderful guitar moment i think of mick ronson's entire career with david bowie and the spiders from mars this is it right here that is the most uh thrilling performance and arrangement of a bowie song from the spiders era that you'll ever hear this is actually my pick for their for the spiders era bowie their best ever song breaking up is hard but keeping dark is hateful much to add i mean I, the honest truth is i am not the hugest aladdin sane fan and a lot of that has to do with it coming on the uh, the heels of uh ziggy where this it, this album was was written on tour it was recorded uh, between legs of of the tour um it feels to me a little uh, a little rushed, a little like they wanted to put out more product within a limited amount of time. They didn't have that much time. Um, that said, there's a lot of great stuff on that, and both of you have really done a great job of talking about them. I mean, the things I would emphasize, I completely agree with Scott's point about the production. One criticism that I have of Ziggy is is the production on Ziggy Stardust is not 
you know, cutting edge 1972. It's, you know, if you listen to other things, like for me, a high watermark of that era, one year later is Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton John, again, produced by Gus Gus Dudgeon, who mm-hmm. has that connection to Bowie. That is a fantastic sounding album. It sounds like it could have been put out last week. <laughs> Ziggy Stardust, you listen to, it sounds, it sounds like uh, old. It sounds small. A lot of the songs don't really carry a punch. Aladdin Sane does. Yep. That sounds much, much better. It has, um, I mean, again, you guys touched on a lot of it. Cracked Actor, that opening guitar sound is just massive, huge, great stuff. Uh, as, as Jeff said, the guitar solo in time, fantastic. The guitar solo at the end of this revamped version of Prettiest Star is pretty great, too. And all of the songs have that, a very distinctive Aladdin Sane Ronson sound, which is meaty, sort of with like sharp edges. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very distinctive, almost like it is literally it, glam in the sense that it actually feels like it glitters sometimes, yeah, right? Yeah, it is. It is. It it's is. a sparkly sound. Yeah, it's it's loud. It pops. It almost sounds compressed, even though this is long before that technology was invented. Um, so those are all great highlights. I agree. Aladdin Sane is, is a powerhouse. Garson again. Great that he's on this album and he will show up later. I mean, he disappears for a very long time and then comes back as like one of Bowie's closest collaborators decades later, tours with him uh, for long periods. So he's very important. Um, and Lady Grinning Soul is a lovely song. I agree with both of you. Let's spend the night together is a really terrible cover. Or shall I say, <laughs> let's spend the night together, which is really weird oh he's just doing <laughs> that breathy little monologue about love it's just like what <laughs> i mean i i get yeah. he was going for something that was sort of very camp right and very ridiculous but he got know, it as a music <laughs> he found it yeah he did you know he got what he was looking for but as a musical artifact it does nothing for me. yeah so everything i mentioned for me this album those are all great bowie highlights somehow the album as a whole feels like somewhat less than the sum of its parts. It doesn't it cohere for me in the way that the best Bowie does. But again, lots of great stuff, and it does sound fantastic. Well, I mean, this is, of course, you know, he, he, he'd finally exploded uh, as com- commercially. Not as much in America. I mean, he was obviously, you know, selling out, you know, venues, and he was popular. He definitely had a cult following here, but in Britain, he was just massive. The hysteria was off the charts. So what does he do? He's got this good thing going. Well, what he does is he <laughs> abruptly retires without even telling his band in advance that's what he's going to do. He goes on stage on their last show of the Aladdin Sane tour. He says, you know, you know, this is the last show I'll ever do. Boom. You go on a rock and roll suicide. It's a pretty dramatic moment. I've heard it's, it's been released officially on the Ziggy Stardust, the motion picture soundtrack. Um, and uh, what he really meant by that was not that he was retiring from music or even from performance, uh, but that he was really retiring the Ziggy Stardust character. Mm-hmm. He didn't quite have the heart to do it, though. He realized actually probably after he had done it, probably it was kind of like a, you know, spur of the moment idea. It's like you know, you know what, screw it, let's just go out with a bang. 
Um, uh, but then he realized, oh, well, the people demand more products. So I, I really think it's funny that Damon characterizes Aladdin Sane as being like, wow, the, the label demanded more products. So we wrote this hastily on tour. Well, my friend, you do not know what hastily recorded product <laughs> sounds like until you get to pinups. Well, you know, pinups. you hear the success of Let's Spend the Night together and you want to do a whole album of stuff like that, right? This thing yeah. went to number one, okay? Number one in the UK. And, and it even spawned a hit single. It was by one of the very few songs on the record that I like. It's just sorrow, but I hate pinups with a passion. Uh, this is actually ironically around this. Brian Ferry has never quite gotten over this. He was it was leaked that Brian Ferry of Roxy Music was recording as a solo thing, sort of a side project, an album of covers called These Foolish Things, which, by the way, is an album that absolutely holds up and I think is really no, a that's, great that's a That's a good album. That's a great record. Uh, that Ferry is convinced that Bowie found out about it, and so he rushed released this thing to get it on the market <laughs> before Ferry's album. And, of course, this one went to number one. Uh, it was one of this is the least deserving chart success of David Bowie's career. These are covers of classic '60s pop songs, the stuff that he grew up with and listened to, and probably played in some of his cover bands. All of these songs, on their individual terms and their original versions, are good songs. Like mm -hmm. you know, "Here Comes the Night" That's by a them, great That's song, damn fine oh. song, right? Yeah. I can't explain in any way, anyhow, anywhere by the Who. Well, come on, you know what I think of the Who. It's fantastic. Uh, I just don't like his versions of almost any of these songs, uh, and I think maybe. Uh, neither do you guys, uh, although I think that there's a couple that maybe if we tried, I think we could say some good things about. Yeah, I, uh, Here Comes the Night, I think, is, is all right. I don't think any version of any song on pinups exceeds the original, which yeah. you, it's like 0 for 12 or whatever. You'd think at least one or two, but they, it really doesn't happen. Um, I, I, I sort of like what he did with I Can't Explain, slowing it down to that lurching beat um, I, I don't mind that. Um, I really dislike, really dislike the his version of Shapes of Things, which is a song I, oh, I love, awful. and it's a terrible yeah. cover. Yeah, the Yardbirds version is, of course, one of those you know, mid-60s classics, and this is just an atrocity. Uh, the one thing I'll say about Where Have All the Good Times Gone, Kink's cover, is listening to it, I actually think, you know, the Van Halen version from Diver Down, they're almost covering this version, not the Kinks yeah. version. That 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 uh, the guitar uh, sound that Ronson gets on "Where Have All the Good Times Gone?" Here, it, it's really that's what Eddie's essentially copying on the Van Halen yep. version. It's very it's much closer to this version than the Kinks version. I at least got that out of pinups. Uh, but there's nothing else, again, that I think really comes close to being as good a, as the original. Yeah, I don't have much to add. I mean, Here Comes the Night is the only song where if if this were like a Bowie song, I would kind of like it. Like, and, and it's fine. I think it definitely has that glam 
era Bowie sound to it. Ronson's guitar is, is big and fat on it. Um, and, and that sort of works as a, as a good tune. But uh, the rest of the album just puts me to sleep. It's really just nothing inspired about it at all. I mean, the best thing I can say about pinups is that it's really short. Uh, that 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 is a great virtue, uh, and especially in this case, not as short as good, but because short means I have to suffer through less of it. I'll say this: "Sorrow," the hit single, that's a good song. It's funny. I, I first knew that not from Bowie, but because it was quoted in the song "It's All Too Much" by George, uh, the George Harrison song uh, by the Beatles. You know, with your long blonde hair and your eyes are blue. Um, that's great, and uh, uh, and I, I do like Bowie's version of it. it's very kind of delicate, and you know. Restraint. There's a restraint there that you don't see in any of these other songs. I try to find her cause I can't resist her. clearly a marking time album but it's also notable as the last time bowie would be working with the spiders from mars mm-hmm. i think he'd already fired their uh their i can't remember i think it was trevor boulder their bassist no no it was their drummer was the they drummer. got ainsley dunsbar ainsley yeah. dunbar to play future Dunsbar's journey instead. drummer ainsley dunsbar was on uh, <clears throat> yes this album. also frank zappa drummer that was how i first knew about him uh, and i think he would be sticking around for what Bowie's next project was, yeah. which is, and this is interesting. What did he really want to do? Well, his ambition, uh, how do I follow up Ziggy? I'm going to do the musical version. Yes, because, you know, this is a book that was always crying out for a musical <laughs> version of George Orwell's 1984. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, he got about halfway through writing the songs and coming up with conceits for these uh, songs and sort of working on music uh, when Orwell's estate, controlled by his widow, uh, said, hell no, we're not letting Ziggy Stardust do uh, 1984, <laughs> the musical. Uh, he's probably just very kind of an old-fashioned lady who wanted nothing to do with this mad, this madman. Um, and so he kind of then ended up sort of rewriting these songs and folding them into a more general dystopian post-apocalyptic conceit called Diamond Dogs. And this is the last studio album that we'll be discussing during this part of you know our retrospective on Bowie. Uh, this is one of those albums for me that I have always found to be, and this is a very weird thing to say, it's less than the sum of its parts. 
as opposed to being more than the sum of its parts. And I mean in the sense that actually every one of these songs on an individual level, I actually really like. I don't actually think there's a weak song on here. Maybe like the, the future legend at the front and then the ending, the chant of this ever-circling skeletal family, at the, these instrumental bits and the narrative bits, eh, fine. But every actual song on this record, I think is ranges from good to great. It's just somehow when it's all sequenced together into this massive gumbo of depression... Uh, and sort of post-apocalyptic paranoia, th- that it gets a little bit too heavy going for me to sort of tolerate all at once most of the time. Um, that said, I'm, I will sing the praises of songs like We Are the Dead, which no one talks about, hmm. or, but I absolutely adore. You know, Sweet Thing, Candidate, that the whole suite there, I think that's a magnificent achievement. It's just somehow these things don't flow as well together as they would if you just listened to them in individual bits or bites. That's my opinion, though. I mean, I oh, I really loved this album at various times. Um, I appreciate ambition in in music, and you know, in, in the rock era, you know, half the time that a rock band or a rock artist tries to do something truly ambitious, it it falls flat on its face because it's hard to do that, and and uh, you know, it doesn't always come off. Uh, this is a case where it doesn't really work. But as you said, Jeff, the the songs on an individual basis are really, really strong. Um, Now, on the other side, uh, this is an album that also, I think, has a fairly muddy sound. Bowie also summarily fired uh, Mick Ronson before they went in to record this album, which I I think is sort of unforgivable in a way. I mean, if Bowie (laughs) wants to go his own way and work with different musicians and different styles, and certainly maybe once he went soul with Young Americans, that didn't make any sense to keep working with Ronson. But Ronson was not just a fan fantastic guitar player but as you noted uh, along the way he he was an arranger he was mm-hmm. a pretty good pianist and played on a lot of bowie's songs when he didn't have wakeman around um and to to kind of dismiss him uh, i think uh was was a little cruel uh you know mount ronson was this was not a mutual 
uh, break and he was hurt by it. And uh, I think it's a real shame because the kind of the revenge of, of Bronson here is that Bowie ends up playing lead guitar on right. this album. <laughs> and let's just say he never tried it again. Um, there, are, there are some solos on this album where you almost can't believe it's almost like a guide track for the real guitarist to come in and do. Well, going Diamond Dogs, right? Like where, where there's like a clearly a part where there should be a solo, and it's just the chords. You yeah, know, because- <laughs> and then, like on Sweet Thing, there's like there's a big guitar solo on there, and it's just it's just something's not right. It's just not. Um, and you know, he brought in you know backup. Uh, you know, Alan Parker plays on 1984 the song, uh, and there was another I forget the name of the other guitarist who came in and kind of sort of played over Bowie on the riff and Rebel Rebel to kind of give it more meat and added a couple of notes at the end of the riff, which, you know, that that song is all riff. I mean, that's the whole point of the song is the riff. Um, so that's a weakness to the album. But as songs, there's a lot of really great stuff. As you said, Jeff, Sweet Thing, Candidate Sweet Thing, that sweet is beautiful. Rock and Roll With Me is like a great kind of Broadway show tune kind of track. We Are the Dead is very powerful and creepy. Big Brother's a great song. Um, so, you know, there's, and I know uh, Scott enjoys a, a bunch of others that I haven't really dug into yet. So there's really great stuff on this album. It's just sort of like, a, you know, you had Cracked Actor on the last album. This album is kind of like Cracked Masterpiece, I guess you might say. <laughs> well, I would actually say that this ain't rock and roll. It's genocide. <laughs> that's a, it's quite a line, yeah. <laughs> I'd say, yeah, yeah, give him credit. That's a fantastic little iconic opening line. And by the way, the applause on that, this is like so funny. One of those factors, the applause that opens Diamond Dogs makes you think it's just a live track. No, it's a studio track. Yeah. Uh, it comes from uh, that really terrible Faces live album called Coast to Coast, Overturned Beginners. Uh, and you actually can hear Rod Stewart saying, hey, at the beginning, right before it fades into that. <laughs> do, 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 do. But yeah, uh, that's uh, David Bowie's this sort of megalomaniacal apoc- apocalyptic fantasy. This, is, uh, this isn't rock and roll, it's genocide. Um, and of course, that's a song that he wrote after he knew that he was going to be denied the 1984 concept mm-hmm. uh and so he turned it into this like you know halloween jack living in the the ruins of the burnt city you know and like you know descending from the rooftops to scavenge food very much kind of in keeping with the sort of the, the tone that had been established earlier on panic in detroit but uh you know as far as his his obvious rolling stones ripoffs go i think it's a lot weaker than say you know, weaker. what you hear on watch that man yeah yeah, Diamond Dogs as a as a track is is uh, is again essentially a Stones homage, but done so much better on the last album. This is it's a, it's a really odd album. Um, it's 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 an odd duck in the catalog, and I'm not sure how to approach it. Nothing. I know I know people really love the Sweet Thing candidate Sweet Thing. Uh, Sort of I'm among those, yes. And it's, it's it's not great for me. You know, the title track isn't anything special. Uh, Rebel Rebel, as uh, David mentioned, is really all about that guitar riff, which, to be fair, is a great guitar riff. And, and it's too simplistic. Beat. See, that's actually one of my least favorite yeah. songs on the album because I just think it. You're right. It's just that riff. 
over and over and over and over and over and over. And after a certain point, I get tired of hearing it. But then you get into the second side and now, Mm -hmm. now I'm intrigued. Now, now I'm interested, uh, you know, rock and roll with me. Um, it sounds like a side closer or an album closer, not a side starter. And so you're already sort of put off kilter by, by starting the second side with rock and roll with me. It's kind of a, a ballad about the relationship between the artists and the audience and, uh, and it's always, always appreciation for, for fans, essentially. Then you start getting into these songs that were meant to be on the 1984 musical. And not just lyrically, but musically, they start to get interesting. Again, I'm not sure I love it, but I want to hear it. Um, the first side goes from this sort of dystopian theme to the to this totalitarianism of, of, of 1984 on the second side. That, that track itself, 1984, I know Jeff likes uh, an alternate version better. I, I, I like this album version a bit, a bit better. It is this funky... They're both great. I mean, don't yeah. make no question about yeah. it. The, the album version of 1984 is a classic song. Uh, I, I just like the way that the other one, which I'll talk about later, kind of leans more into the Orwell. Yeah, and this one leans a little more into the, the funky soul uh, side, the wah-wah guitar, which uh, Alan Parker played. It wasn't Bowie playing that wah-wah. But, you know, it has those sort of skittering strings, almost a theme from Shaft feel to it. Yeah, it's definitely. It's dark but danceable, which is, again, just a really unusual thing. But 1984 is my favorite song on Diamond Dogs. It might crack my top five when we get to the end of the episode. It's just a really interesting track, and I want to go back and listen to it again. I'm looking for a ride I'm looking for a party I'm looking for a side I'm looking for the treason That I knew in 65 Where the staff is Oh, 
another is a, a, a neat song, and I know Jeff mentioned he did not like the closer chant of the ever circling skeletal fa- family, but I gotta dig that actually. <laughs> the, I'm okay with it. It's just it's not a song. It's, it's just it's peace. It's just like right. a loop. Is what it is. But you start to hear other things, and I mentioned early on that we've all talked. You know, Bowie's a guy that wears influences on his sleeve. You can tell. You know, the Velvet Underground. You can tell all these things. You know, I, I hear some some Alice Cooper. Uh, band oh, sure. stuff here throughout Diamond Dogs, which again just makes it really interesting. I can't say I love Diamond Dogs. I don't even know outside of 1984 if I like love these tracks, but I'm interested by the arrangements. I'm interested by this juxtaposition. I really juxtaposition because they go together, but you know the, the, the how the lyrics connect to to the music and the instrumentation, the ragged odd guitar playing of Bowie somehow works I think a little too it, it doesn't make the songs better but again it makes them a different cut than Aladdin saying and so all of that together makes it this uncomfortable interesting listen that I even if I can't tell you that it's his best I, I do recommend you hear it it's interesting I, I think that the second side of this album is I do like the sweet thing candidate, sweet thing, uh, sweet. I think I like what I like most about it. And this is actually something that Damon mentioned uh, in our pre-show notes, where he talked about how it really kind of runs the range of David Bowie's vocals. Uh, you know, he's got the low bass notes that he would, you know, have um, later on in his career, but he still has some of the squawk that sort of, you know, yeah. uh, you know, you know, cockney squawkiness that he had in his earlier career. So it goes from the, can you see? I'm scared. You know, like he's that he's almost a little twist up at the end, and I'm lonely. And then in the candidate part, he's like, you know, I'll make you a deal. Very low, low. It's actually he's on probably uncomfortable a little bit outside of my range, which is uh it's not something that happens a lot with Bowie. Um but uh, I, I really love the span that that travels. Freezing your brain. You think that your face looks the same Then let it be It's all I ever wanted It's a street with a deal and a taste It's got balls, it's got me, it's got And the way that it bursts into Rebel Rebel is actually the best part of Rebel Rebel. When it goes through, you know, that that sort of white nose, waka wak wak, waka wak wak, and that end of the riff. Okay. That's the only part of the Rebel Rebel I need to hear. They could just start fading it down at that point, and I'd be okay. <laughs> just want to have that little transition. But yeah, side two of this one actually does do a lot for me. I really love We Are the Dead. The line, of course, we are the, the title is taken from that line that Julia says to Winston. You know, in the book, you know, like we're the dead. Basically, we're the walking dead here. You know, and we are, you know, we're, you know, we can be found out at any point. And then Bowie turns that into something very different. It's one of the best lyrics that he's written. You know, some of the, there's some really powerful and gross lyrics, frankly. Where it's like, you're dancing where the dogs decay, defecating ecstasy. Like they're just they're pooping all over the street, but it's like such a pleasure for them to do it. There's some frightening images in that film in that film see i called it a film it's a song but it has a cinematic touch to it feel that we are the dead 
But yes, I have to say I really love 1984 uh, so much. But I, I, I like it. it it's in, it before again before he had to re-record it, and when he was still hoping to do the Orwell thing, uh, he, he had had it as a medley with, with another song that didn't make the album. Uh, he gave it to Lulu of all people, uh, called Dodo. Uh, so you know it has it begins with the 1984. You know, someday they won't let you. Now you must agree that whole thing. But then it goes into Dodo, which has this really again just a brutal lyric where you know the character you know could be anybody living in this is you know 1984 society says you know he thinks he's well screened from the man at the top it's a shame that his children disagree they coolly decide to sell him down the line daddy's brainwashing time so you know they just you know his kids decide like hey you know what we'll take the money we'll take the paycheck we'll take the property uh, send dad to you know room 101 <laughs> it's like you know that's not our problem anymore uh wonderful images wonderful lyrics and then the way it swings back in at the end to, to 1984's theme again is just magnificent uh this is one of those songs you can only find on like his box set sound vision that's the only place you're going to find it. i guess it's probably on youtube as well but it's well worth checking out Flooding in your fire, photograph. Will you sleep in fear tonight? Wake to find the scorching light. Neighbor Jim has come to turn you in. Another doe, doe, doe. No, no, no. of course realized well i i didn't get to make 1984 the stage show uh but what i can do is make my own stage show which is basically the diamond dog stage show and this is probably the most visually elaborate tour he ever did complete with like you know acrobatic dancers like hundreds of scene changes bowie emerging from a giant unfolding flower at the beginning of the show to sing 1984 to the audience uh and uh of course he was out of his mind on cocaine at this point which is the <laughs> other thing we need to mention and this is going to become a major part of the story in our next episode um but the only sort of document of this is the album david live 
which is the last album we'll cover here. We don't really need to spend too much time on it, but it does represent that transition. You see the beginnings of the transition of David Bowie from Ziggy Stardust rocker to 1984 rock and roll with me, where he's definitely getting into a soul and ballad thing. And then that's even more obvious here on David Live, where he has, you know, his for me, the primary overwhelming impression of this album, when I just try to put put an image of it in my mind, is, oh, that goddamn saxophone. Um, it is <laughs> everywhere. I hate it, too. It sounds so weak and wimpy and limp. It does not gel with these songs very well at all. Uh, but anybody want to have a good counterintuitive take on this? Well, I, I at least have an amusing story about David Live. Um, when I was, I don't know, you guys maybe brought have brought this up at some point on a previous episode that I haven't heard, but when I was young, uh, there was this Rolling Stone record guide with a blue cover. I think a later edition had a red cover. Yeah, and, oh, and we I, brought it up. Oh, yeah, the Dave Marsh edited volume. Uh, and I owned that and I wore it till it fell to pieces. I read this thing forever, you know, every album in rock history up to that point with a star rating, you know, one to five. And as you mentioned, I think it was Jeff early in, in tonight's show uh, episode um, that, uh, you know, the critics did not love Bowie. And you could see that in the ratings in this book. There were lots of threes and two stars for albums that I would give far more than that. But they also had a rating that was a box, not a star, but below one star. And this translated into record should not exist. And David Live got a box. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I again, I this was kind of like my my uh, my Bible as a kid, as a as a geeked out uh, rock obsessive. And the fact that I was getting into Bowie and this book gave this album a box meant I had to hear this thing. <laughs> and I have to say, I don't hate it that much. I would not no. give it a box, but it is a remarkably weak live album it is so lacking in energy it like some stretches of this thing are like you feel like they're all just spaced out drugged out and it's weird with all the cocaine they were taking that they at least have some energy exactly (laughs) that's the weird thing is like now i know oh well he was all coked out like you'd think that it would be a hopped up he'd be like rushing all the time but instead it's all like ooh, like like bowie's just he's very much in his baritone now because his vocal cords are being thickened by all the cocaine drainage from his nose and he so he's very kind of sounds languid and croony and the tempos all seem slow um and and as you noted with the saxophone and some of the backing vocals it just sounds it sounds like they were all sort of like just tired and had no energy it's it's a really weird vibe for a live album uh it, it it's 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 one of the weird ones in the rock era i have to say by the way i gotta tell you an anecdote that you might even be more amused about uh so that rolling stone record guy that you were talking about and all the terrible ratings they gave to david bowie's albums uh, the reason that happened is that Dave Marsh personally went through the the reviews for Bowie, which were written by a different critic, and he subtracted one star from every one of them on purpose. 
because, he, because he hated Bowie so much, he felt he was so inauthentic and so you know the opposite of what he considered to be like true rock and roll that he actually overruled the original critical take and took a star off of each record. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I love just some of Dave Marsh's reviews, but he's was such a stickler for like authenticity. Like he he absolutely he loved and was partly responsible for Bob Seger becoming a thing because uh, he championed him so much and then when against the wind came out he savaged that album because he thought that he had sold out and you could totally see that in in responding to bowie like i, the, I think the, the more important point is that david live was originally not a box it was just a one star <laughs> i know yeah I, I guess that i could see i mean i would maybe give it two um, I mean, I like the version of all the young dudes. I like their version yeah, of uh, Panic in Detroit as well. Oh, I don't yeah, like it, that version of Panic in Detroit. You don't like? Well, I know because uh, you're such a huge fan of the Aladdin Sane version. But like, I think that there's there is like it's not a complete disaster as a record. But you're right. There's just something about like why does none of this music work nearly as well as it did on the albums? And it's because not only the fact that you know there's the drugs apparently the band had gone on strike for higher wages right, right before yes. the show uh <laughs> but also because i think bowie's heart was clearly moving in a different direction at this point and he kind of just wanted to get it all over with scott what were you going to say it's um there's not a ton of high marks but the last the rock and roll suicide version from this record is pretty darn good uh, mm-hmm. a good vocal performance from Bowie. Uh, I don't like that Panic in Detroit. It's an okay version of Aladdin Sane. Um, there's a Knock on Wood cover, which uh, I guess was a couple of years too early because it would actually be a big hit a few years later uh, covering the Eddie Floyd version. Um, but it, it is kind of stiff. Um, and it is, it's, it's transition too. Uh, you know, I, certainly I was not around when this tour was going on, but accounts would indicate that you know, what it was at the end was unrecognizable from what it started as. They finally uh, released some archival material from like the later parts of the Diamond Dogs, which was called the Philly Dogs Tour, because this is when he was recording Young Americans at the same time in mm-hmm. Philadelphia. And he was doing like an East Coast late, you know, 74 tour, cocaine abuse even worse. But at this point, like all the stage regalia has dropped away and he's doing like half of it as Young Americans material. He's right, doing like right. John Amoli dancing again for like eight minutes and like it's gonna be me and young americans and all of that and uh they finally released some some albums some some concert recordings from this era and they're way better (laughs) they're way better because you know what (laughs) he cares more about the material is is, i think the real obvious issue here He, he felt like he had to play all this old ziggy stuff and the diamond dog stuff i'm touring it uh but he seems to have lost interest in it halfway through yeah, I mean, I would add, uh, and we'll, I think we might come back to it on my list in a few minutes, but uh, I do like uh, the All the Young Dudes from this. It's very different than the Mott the Hoople version, yeah. but I always appreciate it when an artist kind of covers their own tune that they gave away to somebody else. And and uh, there's, although it is a little dirgy and the Berlin kind Cabaret of, version of All the Young Dudes. Yeah, a little bit, but you know, that sort of fits with the song kind of, uh, I don't know, I, for some reason, I'm fond of that version of it. That's the only thing on this album where I actually would like put it on. 
like I occasionally have right. like you know I want to hear that all the young dudes um, and there's something uh, that's uh, you know he really loves that song I mean on on what his really excellent um, reality tour uh, uh, live album the one where he had the heart attack uh, in the uh, early 2000s they do a, a, a version of um, all the young dudes on that and that too is really excellent good, yeah yeah, yeah. No, uh, that's an excellent version oh, you thinking oh we're ending on kind of a down note well you know that's just the way the chronology goes the good news is i mean if you're like me and and i know i am uh what happens (laughs) next is like basically an unbeatable winning streak uh from end to end uh and it all happens because of what david bowie basically discovers and falls in love with when he goes to america to do the diamond dogs tour and that's soul music and that obviously is the story that we'll pick up next time. That's where part two will begin. Uh, we end these multi-part episodes by uh, still giving you uh, our two albums and five songs from this era from each of us. And so we do that here for part one, this first era of David Bowie. And we turn things over first to Damon Linker, senior correspondent at The Week, with two albums from this era you really should own and five songs You've got to hear. Damon, the floor is yours. Okay, thanks. Uh, The albums are a pretty easy choice for me. They are Hunky Dory and Ziggy Stardust, released, by the way, only six months apart, which is bizarrely... I mean, you know, Taylor Swift just released two albums five months (laughs) apart, but but this is a bigger feat. Hunky Dory and Ziggy Stardust within six months is, is a different reality of music. These are two absolutely fantastic albums of the rock era and in bowie's career so those are those choices for me and then do i go right to the five songs yes yep. please yep. yep all right this is hard this is a hard choice there's a lot of great stuff on what i uh, you know what we've been talking about so but uh, this is you know ask me in an hour and they'd be a little different space oddity which for me means a lot i love that song especially because it comes back in ashes to ashes which we'll talk about next time. Uh, Quicksand, which I highlighted when talking about Hunky Dory, is one of my favorite tracks from that album. Five Years from Ziggy Stardust, which I talked about right at the top of the show. Really important for me. Great, powerful, dramatic song. And then one that I actually didn't have much to say about or really even mentioned by, for some reason, from Aladdin Sane, Drive-In Saturday. I really love that song. It's a, it's a beautiful kind of doo-wop, 50s style 
pop tune. Uh, he offered it to Mott the Hoople uh, as a follow-up for all the young dudes. They turned it down, and he was pissed off about it. He recorded it himself. <laughs> uh, and I think he did a really fantastic job of it. That's a really great song. All the young dudes from David Live. I, I really do like that song uh, in all the versions. And the one from that album, uh, I think, uh, deserves to to have pride of place in the catalog as an interesting take on one of his iconic songs that he never recorded properly on an album. So there there is a studio version you can hear on yeah. one of the box set. But it's weirdly not good. That's the thing. It, right? it is. It is. It's, it's, it's not something you want to pull out very much. <laughs> uh, all right. So my two albums from this era of Bowie are are, are really, I mean, obvious for me. I, I, it's Hunky Dory and Aladdin Sane. And as much as I like Ziggy Stardust and I, I like the other uh, the others, uh, those two stand, uh, you know, uh, above. I think pretty clearly, Hunky Dory and uh, Aladdin Sane. When it comes to the songs, five songs to choose from this era, I put changes on the top of the list. I think just a a flawless track uh, to lead off Hunky Dory. So that's there. Uh, five years. It might be on all three of our lists. I guess we'll see. Five years is just a tremendous way to kick off Ziggy Stardust and shows the growth of Bowie entering that album. Uh, a song that did not make the album, but again, I think you really need to seek out a sweet head. Uh, that's on my list of five. I mentioned how much I adore Panic in Detroit, so yes, of course, that's here on the list. And I'll take one from Diamond Dogs, too, uh, that album version of 1984. Uh, it is really an interesting listen, and I think something to hear to get a full kind of scope of what was happening from start to finish from these Bowie albums of this era. Jeff, over to you. Okay, so for my two albums, I'm going to have to actually just agree with Scott uh, that it, it's Hunky Dory and it's Aladdin Sane. I can say a lot of good things about Ziggy Stardust. Oh, that's that's a that's a really bold claim. I can also say a lot of great things about Diamond Dogs and the Man Who Sold the World and Space Oddity. You've heard them all here already, but I think those are the two to go with. For my five songs, <clears throat> I'll pick The Man Who Sold the World, the title track from the album. Uh, I think I'm just hypnotized by Ronson's guitar and, and almost the, the weird flamenco feel of that song uh, and the darkness of the lyrics, which were so sort of you know suggestive of where he would go and the themes that he would be exploring uh, throughout the rest of this era of his career. Second one I'll take from Hunky Dory is Life on Mars. 
song that really introduced me to actually the real wonder and the power of of you know imagination that David Bowie was capable of evoking. Uh, and 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 just sort of it makes you wish that like oh I wish I you know he'd done more like that uh, but he joked to you know I think the other he was talking about when Ricky Gervais asked him to write a song for extras when he did the guest appearance on that TV show I hope you guys have seen it because it's hilarious you know Bowie was like oh you want me to write a song so oh, I'll just go home and dash off another life on Mars for you is that all right um, the point being is that you can't come up with something that transcendent every day it's a, definitely a uh, a, a career highlight for him. The third one I'll take is from Aladdin Sane, and that's Time. Uh, I just love the piano, Garson's piano. I love David's just very kind of Germanic vocalist, vocal stylings, even though he's talking about, you know, such very kind of New York and, you know, con- the American depravities, but also sort of, you know, you know, the sort of universal feeling of getting old. And of course, it's all about Mick Ronson's guitar solo at the end of that song. The fourth one I'll take is uh, We Are the Dead from Diamond Dogs. Just talked about why I find that song to be so compelling. I think it's one of Bowie's best and most upsetting lyrics, and I think the music lives up to that. This is a very, very unsettling piece of music that nevertheless is musically satisfying. And then I guess the the fifth one I'll mention is uh, we, 1984, just like Scott on the Curse. I'll differ from him and Different say version, that I like yes. the, the the Dodo version, <laughs> the 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 medley version, just a bit more. Uh, it doesn't slap with quite the same sort of fury that the album one does, but I think it's it's got more depth to it, and it definitely gets at that Orwellian theme a little more. And I guess maybe for a you know, host prerogative, I'll throw in a sixth one and I'll say kooks. I really do want to say something about it because I never actually did. Uh, I love that song so much. It's so happy. It's so innocent. It's David writing about his son who he named Zoe. That's right. Zoe Bowie. Uh, Zoe later changed his name to Duncan and he's now actually the film director, Duncan Jones. He's directed quite a few good films. You should check his stuff out. Um, uh, but David wrote a song about him saying, like, hey, you know, hey, my little guy, will you stay in the lover's story? And all these really hilarious, like, you know, lyrics about how, like, like we brought, you know, a lot of things to keep you warm and dry. The cribs paint won't dry. And uh, I, I bought you a book of rules uh, and, and things that you can say to people when they pick on you. Because, listen, if you stick with us, you're going to be pretty kooky, too. Hmm. And uh, so I love singing that to my to my little guy because he's probably going to end up a little kook himself, just <laughs> like his dad. I love that song. And if you ever have to go to the school, remember how they messed up this old fool. Don't pick fights with the bullies or the cats Cause I'm not much cop at punching other people's dads And if the homework brings you down Then we'll throw it on the fire and take the car downtown Will you stay in the lover's story? If you stay, you won't be sorry Cause we believe in you Soon you'll grow so take a chance with a couple of cooks hung up on romancing. Will you stay in my lover's story? If you stay, you won't be sorry. And I love this era of David Bowie, but the funny thing about it is that as much as I love this era of David Bowie, boy, you wait until you see what I have to say about the next era of David Bowie. <laughs> and we will get into that very soon. 
Uh, that's our look at this first era of David Bowie here on Political Beats. We thank our guest, Damon Linker, senior correspondent at The Week. Find his columns three times a week about politics and culture at Damon Linker on Twitter. Damon, thanks for joining us. Please come back for part two. You bet it. You betcha. There's no way you could keep me from showing up for the rest of this. All right. So we've got that locked in. Thank goodness. Uh, I'm pretty sure, uh, based on previous comments, Jeff will also be back for part two. We'll see. <laughs> Depends on if you up my paycheck. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to hold out for more. At Esoteric CD on Twitter for Jeff. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. Find our Patreon page to patreon.com slash political beats. Help the show stay ad-free. Support our efforts on the program, too. Entry level for supporting and voting. Mid-level early access to new shows. Higher audio quality. And then the upper level exclusive content at least once a month. Remastered episodes with new song clips, older stuff, older episodes we've done. Spotify playlists coming. Uh, that's all at patreon.com slash political beats. And we say thank you now to some of our Patreon supporters, including Tom Landers, Jason Swick, Mo Lane, Philip Wegman. Hey, he was a former guest on the program. Amanda R., Sean Jester, Sean Gallagher, Martin Hoyt, John Smith, Pablo Gersten, and Rick Landrum, among those who have supported Political Beats via our Patreon. Again, patreon.com slash political beats. You can also subscribe for our feed, to our feed for new episodes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, elsewhere. Go to nationalreview.com. Find us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.